Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. I'm recording this intro from a dirt parking lot here in Estes Park, Colorado, right next to some pickleball courts where I can see some locals swatting the ball back and forth. Talk about an enthusiastic group of people. Those pickleball players take it very seriously. My guest today is Ben Ditto. Ben is a professional climber and photographer from Bishop, California. He is also married to one of our favorite podcast guests, Katie Lambert, episode 15, if you want to check that one out. Katie's awesome. Katie was actually the person that told me I should have Ben on the show, and I'm so glad we finally made it happen. Ben is a fascinating guy and adventurer, and his list of accolades is very long and very diverse. He's done a lot of interesting stuff. We talked about Ben's upbringing in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and his early climbing with his dad as a kid and teenager. We talked about how he got the nickname Scared Guy, which is hilarious given the things that he has done as an adventurer and climber. We talked about getting into the competition scene and winning competitions in the Southeast and what it was like competing against Chris Sharma and Tommy Caldwell for the first time. We talked about falling in love with the mountains and some of his most memorable trips. We talked about near-death experiences and how he got the nickname Dinafit Dangler. That was a crazy story. Ben shared some advice for aspiring photographers, and he talked about climbing Father Time on Middle Cathedral in Yosemite with his wife, Katie Lambert. We also talked about a group of people called The Wild Bunch and a short film called The Adventures of the Dodo that Ben helped create and was a part of. If you are a climbing film enthusiast like myself, you might remember that film from Real Rock 11, I think it was. It's amazing. It won the Charlie Fowler Award for Outstanding Climbing Films at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival. And... The film depicts the Wild Bunch, we talk about who those people are, sailing to Baffin Island to put up first descents on a little sailboat called the Dodo's Delight, and it's just such a fun film. Ben is a really thoughtful guy and has a very friendly and calm demeanor that really comes through in this episode. It feels like sitting down on a lazy Friday morning and having a nice long chat over coffee which is exactly what we did over Zoom, of course. Ben was at his studio in Bishop, but it was great. I loved our chat, and now you get to join us. So pour yourself a fresh cup of steaming black coffee or your cozy beverage of choice. Sit back and relax and enjoy a very fun conversation with climber, photographer, and adventurer, Ben Ditto. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm tired today. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Why are you tired? Um, the past couple of days I was helping out on a car commercial up in Mammoth. Okay. So hanging out with like a 20 person crew, which I guess is kind of small for that type of uh, commercial and just helping out any, any, any way I could, you know? Okay. So, yeah. 
a little change of pace for me. Yeah. Do you do commercial stuff on that scale often or just whenever it, whenever it ends up in Mammoth nearby? Yeah. I try to tag along whenever it's happening locally here. Okay. You know, we're, we're pretty close to LA and that's a pretty constant source of work for people that can get it. And so I'm interested in learning about that kind of commercial work. Like car commercials in particular or just bigger commercial uh, film ventures in general? Yeah, just bigger, bigger commercial things. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm not particularly into cars. I'm into the utility of cars. <laughs> they are important, yeah. But they're not really like a part of my personality, you know? Right. Where are you sitting right now? I'm in my studio. Um, Katie and I bought this building in Bishop, and we operate a little co-working office here. Okay. And the main event for me is this awesome photo studio that I've built here. And um, I'm, I'm assuming that on the podcast, people won't be able to see what you're looking at. But I do have all these, uh, you know, lights and backgrounds and modifiers and things. And I shoot uh, different portrait projects here and small advertising projects um, and little video projects and things like that here. Got it. It's uh, my whole story is just about learning new things and about evolving as a human. And my work just kind of follows that whole thread as well. So, you know, my photography work has taken on many forms and this is another one of them. Um, and having this building and having this space really allows me to flourish and uh, just to continue to develop as a photographer and um, yeah, just pursue things I'm interested in in life, which turns out to be a lot of things. <laughs> Is that the studio where you shot the zebra photos of Katie? Yeah. Those are so cool. So unique and so cool. I loved it. I love seeing those. Yeah, yeah thanks. So it's really fun to be a part of stuff like that, even though that's just personal work and just personal stuff, but it's not possible without other creative people around, you know, that have ideas and then we can all kind of work together. And, you know, we have a makeup artist and then, you know, Katie kind of has the original idea and then, uh, you know, we kind of push each other to come out with something cool. That's great. I'm always curious about the, the professional climber photographer combos, you know, there's a handful of them out there. And I, this is actually something I asked Mikey Schaefer about when I did an interview with him. You know, I was planning going into that interview to kind of split our time and spend roughly half of it talking about his climbing achievements and then half of it talking about his uh, photography and videography. And he wasn't that interested in talking about the the photo side or the video side. He's like, you know, it's, it kind of feels like a job right now. And I'd rather just talk about climbing for three hours. So that's what we did. Um, but looking at your I was looking at your Instagram this morning. And it's all photography, and it's there's such an interesting variety. There's a fish. There's a photo of Katie topping out a, a rock climb. There's a beautiful snowy scene. There's a gal with a little kitten in the front of her coveralls, which is super cute. It's all over the place. It's beautiful. I'm curious what uh, what space photography occupies for you. Does it feel like a creative outlet for you 
or is it just work or is it something some something in between yeah i mean you know one thing that's interesting about instagram is it seems like for some people it's all about captions you know um that's the part i struggle with the most to tell you the truth is like uh, that's why I'm a photographer, I think, and maybe not a writer. And it doesn't mean I'm not a storyteller, you know, so that's how it kind of manifests. It's like, these are things that I'm feeling. And this is, these are things that I'm interested in. So it is very much an expression for me. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a way that I communicate. Visual storytelling. Yep. I mean, you can get a glimpse of, uh, of things that I'm interested in personally by just looking at that stuff so yeah it's rock climbing it's people it's our planet um and it's it's kind of how we all fit into it you know and i you know all that stuff is really humbling you know like we're just these tiny little specks like we're here today gone tomorrow you know and um that that instagram stuff and photography in general is just a way of kind of catching up with what i think is important mm. That's cool. Can you, I'm curious if you can put that into words. What do you try to communicate or share with people through your photography? If there's, is there any through line, any, any central thread that connects it all or threads doesn't have to be a singular one. Yeah. I started photography when I was a little kid. Uh, sitting right here behind me on the table, I've got my, like the original film camera that I had. It's a Nikon FG. Uh, actually, it's my brother's. He, it's got his name engraved in the bottom, like scratched in there with a nail or something. I don't know. Jeremy <laughs> Dittos, you know. I kind of took it over, though, and started shooting with it. And then, and then I just played around with it. But then in high school, I was one of the yearbook photographers. Okay. That was kind of my first time to shoot black and white film and develop it in the dark room, do the printing, all of that stuff. And I liked that. I, I'm a very process oriented person. I'm hands on. I like to make things, you know. And uh, what I really realized about photography at that point was that it was my ticket to freedom. I mean, this thing I just realized in high school was going to allow me to live a really interesting life. Um, perhaps a life without, perhaps a life that doesn't really fit well in a box. That's mm. kind of hard to describe in a simple sort of statement. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, basically the way it manifested, was like, I had this camera and as long as I had sort of an assignment, I didn't have to be anywhere in particular, you know, I could get out of class, I could roam the halls, I had <laughs> a great excuse to do whatever the heck I wanted to be doing, you know. And I think that that's just kind of continued my whole life. It's the, the camera has allowed me to live a pretty unique way of life and a way that I, I just want to keep exercising that. Um, didn't totally directly answer your question, but I think it's kind of a good start. Yeah, that is, that is. I'm curious if you had, I'm curious what your parents did and where that inspiration came from to pursue a life that doesn't fit in a box because I've, it took me about 27 years to realize that that was an option. You know, there's, oh, there's like other ways to do this whole life thing that aren't the conventional way. And 
Like, I think I suspected that earlier on, but I don't think I believed that it was possible for me. Um, I'm curious, was that just you as a kid? Or did you have examples of that around you that that made you curious about a different way of life? Yeah, I, I was raised in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, you know, that's a really conservative place. Um, the Bible Belt and all that. And, and my family, my parents and their parents and everybody, they were definitely following that thread for themselves. And, and, and you know, they tried to get me to go along with that. But there was just something about it. I just kind of saw through it in a way where I was, it just didn't work for me, like the type of that type of life, you know, and um, yeah, I don't really want to talk too much about like my parents and that sort of stuff because I have all the respect in the world for them and sure. they support, they've supported me and I don't want to give anybody the, the impression that like, you know, that I don't love my parents and that they haven't been like instrumental in my life and, and the support that they've given me and the love they've given me has just been immense, you know, but there was a lot to it that I just didn't resonate with. And I don't know where that came from. No, I mean, everybody, all of our extended family, like church on Sundays, like for sure, you know, but it just didn't work for me. And that caused some problems, you know. I bet. Yeah. There was definitely some drama and growing pains um, throughout like kind of the middle school era. And um, the one thing that was really therapeutic about our sort of family life was that my dad was way into going in the outdoors and like, you know, now we call, you know, climbing is like an outdoor sport, but like fishing is like, that's like a sportsman's world, you know? And so uh, somehow those words mean something to us. And so my dad was a little bit more on the sportsman side of things, you know, there wasn't rock climbing so much back then, especially in, the South in, uh, you know, the late seventies, early eighties. Um, but you know, the way it worked for us is, uh, we would just go camping and hiking. Um, my dad was just way into exploring all the little pocket wilderness areas that they have around there in Appalachia. And I've got two older brothers and, you know, being the youngest, um, I was just kind of tagging along and happy to be there. And we would just do these ridiculous camp outs in the cold weather and just made all the mistakes you could make, you know? Um, but somehow it's stuck, you know, and we had, I don't know if y'all remember the catalog mail order company called Campmore. you know, you might, you can visualize these, this like newsprint paper and like line drawings of like tents and sleeping bags. And uh, they had like rudimentary climbing gear back in the day, like like figure eights and like static lines and carabiners and stuff. And like as a little kid, we just had these things. And I just remember I was like circling little things and it was always like the climbing gear, like hmm. this is what I want for Christmas type of thing, you know. <laughs> then we started getting the REI catalog, um, which they had like color pictures of like desert towers. And, you know, I'm like a 10 year old. And it was so fascinating to me. Um, 
so on the one hand, there was this kind of like church stuff that I wasn't into. But on the other hand, there was this outdoor stuff that I was way into. And I think my parents saw that. They were like, wow, this is really wild. And um, they helped me out with it. They supported me in it. And when I walked downstairs one day with like these two catalogs in my hand, and I'm like, we need we need these ropes. We need this harness. I need this stuff. And they're like, what for? And then I had the REI catalog. And I'm like, well, look, like these pictures right here. When we go out west to climb these desert towers, that's why we need this stuff. When, we, when we go... <laughs> Yeah. When we go, and their minds are just like, where is this kid? Which planet is he on, you know? As a 10-year-old. Uh, yeah, 11, 12-year-old. That, you know, that era is when it was all starting to happen for me. And then I got my first climbing shoes for my 13th birthday. Um, all of that stuff just kind of coincided with a point where my dad was, he had a lot more time. You know, he had just been working his ass off and raising three kids and being the youngest, you know, he had reached a point where he could relax a little bit more. And then I got the benefit of that because he, you know, I think probably a lot of fathers go through this where they're like, Oh, I wish I could have spent more time with my kids. And, but I was just working and, Mm. you know, for me, that meant we started climbing together. That's awesome. Where did, did where did you start? I I had thought I'd written some notes when we talked last, and I thought you'd started in a climbing gym. Did you start indoors for the first time? No, it was nothing like that. In the southeast, it was just uh, out on the rocks, you know. Okay. And um, what are now what is now a somewhat you know regionally famous bouldering area called Little Rock City mm-hmm. um, was just a short drive and uh, for us away from where we lived and. Uh, so it was just nothing. I mean, we heard about it at the local like outdoor store, um, which is now, you know, the guys that own it are have also been a great support to me in my teenage years and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, we started going up to Little Rock City, which was just nothing at that point, just a bunch of rocks out in the forest um, and just top roping, just making this stuff up. You know, we had a clean slate. There was no guidebook. There was no, nothing really known about this stuff. Like we knew that people sort of climbed there and and people repelled there. And like, that was sort of a thing that people did, you know, kind of like the ROTC type crew, um, how they're doing their thing. Um, Were there anchors on these routes or were you just slinging trees at the top of the cliff and going for it? Yeah, I mean, it was like full on Boy Scouts out there. We were just <laughs> tying knots. I mean, it was, we were in hog heaven, basically. We were just these redneck kids and my dad and just out there making it happen. You know, we had all the books. We had the like Royal Robins, Rockcraft, and, and um, I was into tying knots already and just, just anything I could do to sort of feel like a climber, you know. Um, so I was way into it. And still I am, to tell you the truth. (laughs) I love it. This, uh, I don't mean to jump ahead or jump around, but I want to ask you a question um, that seems like it might tie in right here. I hope it does. Um, I reached out to your wife, Katie, Katie Lambert, for people listening. Um, We did an episode together last year. It was super fun. I reached out to her for fun or funny things to ask you about. And she gave me a great list, uh, just a few things. I want to ask you about a childhood 
nickname that you had that I think you got from your best friend, uh, Scared Guy. Is that right? Was that your childhood nickname? Uh, Well, not exactly childhood, but um, yeah, my friend Matt and I, uh, Matt Sims, great, great friend, um, total legend down in the South at this point. Um, rock climber yeah rock climber just ultra athlete in general you know has just uh keeps himself at a really high standard um we used to just spend so much time together i'm not exactly sure how it came about but i like what i can tell you is that matt would just eat like kids cereal like boxes and boxes and boxes of it (laughs) One cereal that he liked in particular, if you saved all the box tops, you could send in for this T-shirt that had scared guy written on it. It had this graphic (laughs) on it of this guy with his hair standing up. And like, I'm not sure exactly why that came about, uh, that it was like, that was, he got that T-shirt for me. I'm not exactly sure why. (laughs) Um, But it has played out, you know, I, it's kind of funny because amongst a lot of my friends that I hang out with here in the States, I'm pretty rugged, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a mountain goat. Um, right. I am pretty adventurous character, but then it's interesting to have gotten around other people in my life where when it comes to adventure, I'm kind of the weak link, you know, um, <laughs> So I definitely sought out these types of adventures where there really was no rescue. There really was no, no no margin for error, you know, like later on in my climbing, I got out of the like single pitch cragging and bouldering and stuff like that, that I grew up with. And, um, there's a, there's been a whole sort of series and just evolution of what I've been interested in climbing wise. Um, but eventually I got into these really out there adventures with these Belgian guys, uh, Sean Villanueva, Nico Favres, and we did some really cool trips together and it didn't matter how adventurous and like brave I thought I was like, I was always a total scared guy, like compared to these guys. Um, anyway, I'm not sure what kind of story that is, but it's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of interesting, you know, it, that, that can go both ways. Like I can both be really adventurous and um, put myself out there. But I think what it really boils down to is that I'm pretty analytical. And um, I mean, I think that's what we're supposed to be. You know, we we're putting ourselves in these dangerous situations and really like everyone gives lip service to the idea that what we're trying to do is is not necessarily make it to the top. We're We're actually just trying to make it back home. And um, that's kind of the way I think about this stuff, you know. Um, So maybe that's where the nickname comes from. (laughs) Katie wrote that she thought it was both true and hilarious given all that you accomplished. And it it sounds like that's right on point. It sounds like you're brave enough to put yourself in very dangerous, bold situations and then you feel scared when you get there. Which is, which makes perfect sense, (laughs) but you're still out there doing it and you're, yeah, it's pretty amazing. The uh, accomplishments that you've racked up. So do you still have the shirt? That's the important question. 
No, it never really fit me. Um, <laughs> I guess I always thought I was a large, but I'm actually kind of a small. <laughs> you always thought you were a large? <laughs> I guess. Uh, Katie's always telling me my clothes are too big. Even now, I'm like, God, I guess I'm going to have to get extra small. But um, no, I just wanted to find this quote. I, a friend of mine passed away a few years ago, and um, this seemed poignant. Uh, this is a Hunter S. Thompson quote. It says, the edge, there is no honest way to explain it because the only people who really know where it is are the ones who have gone over. The others, the living, are those who pushed their control as far as they felt they could handle it and then pulled back or slowed down. But the edge is still out there. Mm. That's so good. That's pretty hardcore. That's pretty hardcore. That's a, an amazing piece of writing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to circle back to the Wild Bunch. But yeah. but first, um let's continue the progression of your climbing. I had thought I remembered that you got pretty into indoor and comp climbing at one point, and that was a surprise to me because it seems so out of character with with this image that I have of you of all these adventurous routes, your photography being a mountain goat, as you described. I mean, that that is the image that comes to mind. Is that true? Am I, re am I remembering that right? Yeah, so the way it all worked was basically, um, you know, age 12, like out there top roping with my dad and my brothers and, you know, wearing like our running shoes. And like, I definitely... Uh, had black soled running shoes. Like I thought those would help me stick better. Like, I don't know what it was. I, I knew that the climbing shoes had, you know, this black rubber on the bottom. I wasn't sure what it was all about. Cause <laughs> it's going to really get there. Like gear wasn't just readily available as a 12 year old and especially not in the South at that point, you know, this is 1987 um, when this is all going down. And, but I mean, shortly thereafter, I, got a pair of fee rays for my birthday and like for those that can recall um and it just things started to happen like at that point you know my dad he was like physically developed he's athletic he ran a lot and um he was strong and he could climb way better than me you know but there was like this certain point where things started to click for me i started to get it and it was just interesting because my dad was my climbing partner. And then suddenly I was kind of getting better than he was. Um, and, and our, our experience level started to increase and we had cams and we had nuts and we were leading. And, um, you know, I was so little that when I would belay my dad, we would attach the belay device to a tree, like tie it around there with webbing. Cause, cause I mean, all of my early experiences were, um, you know, outdoors on the rocks. We're just making it up as we go. I mean, we had good influences. We had books and, and there were a few people that had a little bit of experience. Um, but it just started to develop and I started to meet other climbers and I would go out climbing with other people than my dad. These tended to be like adults, you know, these, there weren't like a bunch of it's not like it is now where there's like a bunch of kids that are like running around climbing and stuff. It was just like these older people. And so I would get out of school and, um, 
plan to take the bus over to the outdoor store and meet up with some people to go climbing after school and that kind of stuff. So um, I was getting a lot of really great experience and good mentorship from people. At some point, I might have been 14 or 15. Um, it became known that there was this outdoor climbing wall at this sporting center down in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a couple hours of drive. And and it became known that there was going to be a climbing competition there. Okay. Uh, and so a bunch of us went down to it. And How old are you at the time? Oh, God. The timeline is is uh hazy a little bit but i'm thinking maybe 15 i don't believe i could drive that okay um anyway i i had just done my first you know 512s and uh that sort of stuff and oh wow yeah like like trad climbing stuff you know yeah Um, and maybe there were a few bolts thrown in the mix here and there um but yeah this is kind of like archaic stuff, you know? Um, so I don't know exactly how it came about, but I had entered in the intermediate category, you know, but somebody pointed the finger and was like, this guy climbs harder than that, this kid. And so I got bumped up into like the adult, like elite category. And I mean, at that point, the people that, you know, we're kind of in that class where I don't know if you are aware of Porter Gerard. Mm. Uh, he, yeah. you know, developed the red. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was a lot of other climbing in the red before Porter showed up, but definitely like Porter ushered in like the modern era. So there was like the Porters and the Doug Reed, who is also like similar character at the New River Gorge, and um, this guy Harrison Decker and. They were like all of these impressive characters, you know, and I'm like this skinny little kid and I wound up doing really well in the comp, you know, that was just kind of like out of nowhere, dark horse. Um, I don't think I won, but I might've got second or I don't know. I don't know exactly what it was, but that was like a really pretty neat experience, you know? And, and so it was just seemed like something fun to do. Like I never set out to be a comp climber, but you know, at that point there wasn't a whole lot of climbing culture. Uh, you know, especially not like there is now where it's just everywhere you look. I mean, we just had the Olympics, you know? So at that point, this was just another experience. Like I was a trad climber, like rock climber. Like There were no climbing gyms. There was no nothing. But so we started to tune into it a little bit more as, as a fun thing to do. I mean, especially if I was going to win or like do well, you know, like positive feedback loop. So my father and I started driving around to go to these comps and I just started winning them. Um, (laughs) And we're talking like East coast regional type comps, you know, but they would the what you saw was that they drew a pretty big crowd. Like basically anyone that was interested in climbing on the East coast would show up at these things and they would be in like, like one of the big regular comps that would go down um, which at this point is kind of laughable in scale. It, uh, at, was in this, uh, at the Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill, North Carolina had a big sporting center where they had a sort of like a top rope only climbing wall, you know, and that just, that went on like year after year after year. And we would just show up to this thing, sleep in the gym, like on, on like the basketball court 
this is like a basketball court converted into a climbing wall, you know, and we would all like camp out in the climb in the basketball gym and then like do the comp the next day. And then everyone would drive home, you know, and slowly you could just see it happening where there was more and more of these comps over the next period until, you know, then I could drive. And then I was going with my friends that were my own age to these things. And slowly the culture, I mean, especially in Chattanooga, just started to develop more and more where there were people my age I was climbing with. And um, yeah, it turned into a really neat thing, you know, and that, that whole comp thing definitely developed. I mean, when, when I was in high school, uh, I took my first flight, got on an airplane, like a commercial airline for the first time. And me and a couple of buddies flew out to San Francisco and um, rented a car. And uh, the gym at that point, San Francisco City Rock, which is started by a guy named Peter Mayfield and others, um, they were hosting the national level climbing competition out there. And it was going to be like Scott Franklin and Doug Inglekirk and Hans Florine and Steve Schneider and all these guys. And I mean, there we were, we were just like these kids from the South, like what the heck is going to happen out here? But they were just confronted with all of our, these legends, you know, these guys that we read about in the magazines and saw in the movies, you know, at that time there, there was, starting to become a little bit more of this culture of climbing and a little bit more of this media. Um, and it was always really focused. All of the stuff that we heard about was always really focused on Yosemite and Colorado somewhere, you know, like that's basically mm -hmm. what we talked about. Like if it was cool, it was either in Colorado or California. And so, you know, it sort of had the, a chilling effect. Like we didn't necessarily appreciate the great resources we had at our fingertips there. Sure. A short drive from our home, you know, um, that played out interestingly later in life, but, but yeah, that first comp, you know, flying out to California and I mean, it was just a disaster. Like I didn't perform <laughs> anywhere near like my potential, um, on that sort of a stage, but, um, just a really eye-opening experience. And then meeting a lot of these guys who I'm still friends with, uh, you know, Hans and Steve Schneider and, you know, Scott Franklin and all these people that you know, now as adults, that, yeah, it's, it's been, this kind of started out a really fun ride. Uh, mm. I suppose eventually, you know, I was doing really well at a certain level on the East coast. Um, I could, do really well in just about any of those comps. Um, and so I did after I did start heading out West a bunch more for these comps, but I found that I'd never really performed well on that stage. You know, mm. um, I never had really like a great nationals, uh, where, uh, you know, I would make finals, but I would never quite win or I would never, I would always make a mistake or something like that. And, uh, I was going to ask, was it, was it the competition being that much more fierce or was it, was it you, was it your mental, uh, was it something going on for you showing up on this bigger stage nerves or performance anxiety or whatever else? Uh, yeah, I don't, I never really set out to be like a pro climber or, you know, I was not a very competitive person in general. 
Um, so I just don't think I had that like eye of the tiger. Like I mm. really just out there to have a good time, you know, and it, it sort of came easy to a point. I mean, I worked hard. I climbed a lot. I was good at it, but I wasn't like trying to beat anyone necessarily. You know what I mean? It would have been cool to win. <laughs> um, but I wasn't just, I wasn't like out there to destroy anyone or anything like that, you know? So I think that that had a lot to do with it. Um, I do remember the last, like a pretty pivotal moment in my life um, was uh, Mission Cliffs had just started. That's one of the big gyms in San Francisco. Um, yeah, 1995. <laughs> I bought my first van. Okay. And, and I drove it out west. This wasn't my first big trip out west, but but it it was one of them and um I intended to stay out there and live in Salt Lake City. Um but along the way I wound up going to the National Championships in San Francisco with a buddy of mine. And competed and this was the first time that i had become aware of chris sharma and tommy caldwell they were younger than me by you know almost 10 years um how old are you at this point early 20s mid 20s 1995 i'm 20 20 okay i guess they were maybe they're like five or six years younger than me okay but you know at that point they're like 15 16 years old and I just didn't know about them, you know, I mean, it wasn't like Instagram existed or anything like that. You kind of had to look for it and uh, for that kind of media. But anyway, these guys just destroyed it. Like they just were winning. It was clear, you know, it was clear that the standard had gotten a lot higher mm. with these two guys. And that was a pretty big turning point for me. I sort of said to myself, you know, you're going to have to find a way to make a living. Like it's not just going to be easy to be a pro climber and to win comps and just kind of have it all handed to you. Like you're going to have to have like a job. <laughs> and that was a pretty big reality check. Just go into this comp sort of having some high hopes, but then just kind of getting it handed to me. Um, but being really inspired by you know, what this younger generation was going to be able to pull off. And that, that was kind of the end of it for me. I was like, yeah, I guess, you know, like I said, I wasn't, I never really set out to be like a pro comp climber or like a professional climber by any means. It was just this opportunity that presented itself. And I mean, this was like brand new stuff basically. Right. I'm curious with those, with those first comps, with that first trip to California with your friends, first time flying on a plane, were you winning money doing this? Like, were you able to pay your own way through some of your previous competition winnings or were your, you know, were your parents basically uh, sponsoring this experiment? You know, like, we'll see if, we'll see how far he can take this thing. I could win money. I did win money. Okay. At this point, a lot of the comps, at this point, a lot of the comps were like gear prizes too and that sort of stuff. Um, but there was money involved. At some point with the early comp winnings and stuff, um, you know, 510 offered me sponsorship and Petzl sponsored me and stuff like that too. So I think they might've helped me somewhat with the travel and 
that sort of stuff. I mean, those early sponsorships were amazing as well. You know, um, just suddenly having like climbing shoes <laughs> and being able to call up and get a new pair. Um, I mean, that was just a game changer for a kid in the South that didn't have a ton of resources, you know, or access to just that kind of gear. Yeah. Eventually, um, five, like, I really liked the 510 UFO. That was like, if you, if anyone can remember that shoe, I mean, at that point it was like, you know, the marketing was with Todd Skinner and wild Iris and all these hard roots they were doing. And it just really, I really loved that shoe. And then 510 stopped making it. Um, and they came out at that point with the Anasazi line, which they still roll with. Um, and I wasn't as interested in that shoe. And the people that distributed Boreal had convinced me to climb in their shoes. Uh, and at that point, the laser was a big deal. And the Ninja, like this is like one of the first slippers. Like if you look mm. at pictures of the 90s and if you look at what you know, Lynn Hill was wearing, she freed the nose and stuff. She's in Borealis. It's like ninjas and, and lasers and this shoe called the Vector, you know, I mean, this was a pretty big deal. So I was pretty psyched on that, that Spanish brand Boreal as well. And, um, yeah. So the sponsorship was pretty clutch (laughs) with my eventually becoming kind of disillusioned with comp climbing, and just my place within it, um, you know, I eventually like wrote letters to the people that were sponsoring me. And I was like, you know, I don't think it's really going to work out. Like, I'm not going to compete anymore. And like, I don't really want to have sponsorship. And I don't, I don't want to have that type of pressure, hmm. you know, because at that point, I had started to take it pretty seriously. And I knew that I loved climbing. But I... As something had been lost in my pursuit of competitions. There was some aspect to it that kind of diluted the joy and the real meaning of it for me. Mm-hmm. And so it was a pretty big turning point, like I said, where, you know, at that point, we're in San Francisco, my buddy and I were in my van. Um, I knew I wanted to be in Salt Lake. I had a place lined up. I had already lived there the year before. Um, I had connections there and I knew I, so we went back there and I just kind of settled into it for the next few years of, uh, you know, I got a job at the Patagonia outlet there in Salt Lake and, um, sort of the first full-time job I ever had really first and only to tell you the truth. Like, (laughs) um, and I, but I just really loved it. Like that van turned into a real lemon and it broke down and I didn't have a car for years, but, but I had so much else, you know, I had a bike and I loved mountain biking and I got so obsessed with the Wasatch range there in Salt Lake city outside mm. of Salt Lake and coming from kind of the Appalachia mountains, being in the Wasatch it was just like a candy store. There's these 11,000 foot peaks and there's all this granite and there's all these trails. And I got into skiing and snowboarding and back, all of it was backcountry stuff. And it's a miracle we didn't kill ourselves. Um, but you know, we learned a lot and I just got way into the mountains. Mm. Um, so kind of going from this early, early climbing experiences, place and trad gear, 
climbing single pitch cliffs. I had all this experience with that type of gear and with that, you know, type of climbing where it didn't really seem like anything crazy we were doing. We were just climbing. It was trad climbing, but it didn't really have that, that label at that time, you know? Um, but after doing all the competition stuff and, you know, pursuing sport climbing and that sort of stuff, um, what really brought the joy back into my climbing was being in the mountains and being able to apply that kind of high level skill that I had into this adventurous setting. Mm. Um, so there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm curious, were you new rooting? Were you repeating stuff? Was there, were there established climbs in the Wasatch? What did that look like at the time? Oh, I mean, when I moved to Salt Lake City, it was like Mount Olympus in Greece. Like all of the gods lived there, if you know <laughs> what I mean. We're talking about Boonspeed and, you know, all of these characters um, that are so famous in climbing now and, and are basically like the forefathers of kind of modern sport climbing. Like they all live there and I mean, climbing is not like tennis or something like that. Like, if you're psyched on tennis, like, you can't get anywhere near to John McEnroe or, like, right, the Williams sisters or anything like that. But you can walk into the climbing gym and hang out with, like, all of the top dogs. And that's a really neat thing, you know? Like, you can have a personal relationship with your heroes. And I always appreciated that about being in Salt Lake City because they were all there. And if they didn't live there, then they always came there because the trade shows were always in Salt Lake City. And Salt Lake City really became like, what well, in the time that I lived there, it kind of became, you know, the, the hub of the outdoor industry. Mm. Um, kind of rooted there because of the fact that Black Diamond was there and then eventually Petzl moved there. And it is this metropolitan area right next to pretty radical mountain range. Um, so there, there was already a lot of developed climbing there. Okay. And, um, yeah. And there's a lot to do. There's, there's bouldering and, you know, little cottonwood, there's American fork, there's tons of different rock types around there. There's the Wasatch. Were you doing a mix of things or was it, did you just dive full in a hundred percent into the mountains and granite and climbing cracks and skiing off or whatever it was that you were doing? Yeah, there were some turning points. Um, you know, my, at that point, my friends tended to be like competition climbers and sport climbers. And that was what we were doing a lot of, you know, um, but what I found was the climbing style there was so specific and so different than what I grew up with in the South that trying to push like sport climbing numbers for me there for a while it was so frustrating. Like I just wasn't good at climbing an American fork when I'm, when I first moved mm -hmm. there, I just couldn't do it. I mean, it's like a short, hard power endurance stuff, you know? And I was more used to like huge jug hauls out these caves in the Southeast, you know, mm. uh, get really good, like endurance and that sort of stuff. But, um, wasn't really able to hang on like the 30 foot, hell cave routes and stuff like that it was uh so i definitely was still trying to sport climb and stuff when i first moved to salt lake city and that was just kind of because that's what my community was doing 
But at some point, I was trying this route called High Water in the Hell area in American Fork. And it was like a grade I could do. It's like 13C, you know, like I can do that, but I just could not do it. And it was so frustrating. It was kind of, it seemed like one of the last climbable days of the season before winter set in. And I was like, all psyched. like, okay, I'm going to do it. Like, this is going to be my day. And I was like rested and psyched and I got there and I hadn't brought my climbing shoes. And <laughs> Damn. I was fuck, you know, like what is going on? And my buddy and I, we were just like, you know what? Let's like, you know, if you drive up past the hell cave and past all the climbing at American fork, you just get up to mountain Pinogos and it's just this huge Alpine wilderness up there. And we said, screw climbing today. Let's just go for a hike. And we just like hiked up part of this mountain. It was just this incredible experience. And so maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but that's sort of started to breathe new life into me where I was like kind of getting fascinated with this other world. Mm. And then, and then, yeah, there was definitely a couple of years there where, you know, I didn't have a car and I was like riding my bike to work. But the people I worked with at the Patagonia outlet, they were a different crew. You know, they were hiking, they were into backpacking. And I was meeting a lot of people, they were skiing. So I suddenly had a different network and different opportunities. And I started to roll with a little bit different crew and started to spend more time in the mountains. Um, eventually, I saved up enough money to buy another car, um, this little Honda Civic. And I started to really put the miles on this thing, driving up to the Tetons and driving up to the Wind Rivers and starting to explore more of just what alpine rock climbing really was mm. and finding my ability to express myself in that alpine range, those alpine ranges in the Rockies there. So we're sort of like, weaving our way around to finding these answers to the questions you're asking. But <laughs> I just want to hear your your story. So this is perfect. Cool. I am curious, when you had that moment at the competition in in uh, at Mission Cliffs, yeah. is that right? Yeah. And meeting or seeing Chris and Tommy and just this next level and realizing like, okay, I got to find a job. Did you have any ideas? Did you have a vision for what your life what your professional life might look like? Were you still interested in photography at that point? Did you have any aspirations of doing professional photography or other creative work or did that come back in later? Yeah. Um, so the way I'll break it down was that right after high school, like literally a couple of days after I graduated from high school, I moved to Salt Lake the first time. Okay. I had some friends out there that I had met in the competitions and um, I did a, a year after, after high school of just traveling and climbing out West, you know, gap year kind of thing. I think it's called. And uh, after that year, I did go back to Chattanooga and I was so into climbing and just training and competition at that point that, I thought I would do exercise physiology type stuff. And I did a year at the community college in Salt Lake where I was thinking, yeah, this is going to be cool. Like exercise phys or, you know, some variation thereof. 
but then after that year, the road just called <laughs> and I just couldn't stay in Chattanooga anymore. Um, so I headed back out West. That's when I had that van and all of that. So that was kind of my first inkling of what my professional life might be like. But, but at that point, that second time I lived in Salt Lake and I'm working at the outdoor store and all that, it didn't really make sense for me anymore to kind of pursue that exercise and training science. Like, you know, I wasn't as interested anymore and it might not have even occurred to me, you know, I wasn't the type of person that was like, mulling over these heavy decisions like I kind of just go with what feels natural usually I find that if I have this weighty decision that I need to make that like maybe I really don't need to make it hmm. you know like, um, maybe I'm forcing it or something you know so I'll often just delay the decision making until a point where it seems more clear what it is that I need to be doing um you know, I like that. Yeah, that resonates with me too. Yeah. So, yeah, honestly, I was basically just like, screw it. I'm just going to keep climbing, but I'm going to start climbing in the mountains more. And I'm just going to kind of find myself out here. And because I had connections in the outdoor industry, um, you know, I worked at Patagonia for a while. But it, it turns out that I also like to make stuff. And I can just like visualize something that I want to build and I'll draw it and I'll build it. And it turns out that's a pretty good skill to have. Um, and what, what do you mean? Like product design? What are some examples of that? Uh, yeah, basically anything I need. Um, <laughs> like I'm sitting at a table that I made. Uh, our office is full of furniture that I've made. Um, not because I couldn't buy it, but because I enjoy making it. Um, so the way that it manifested at that point was I started working with marketing company, uh, marketing departments to help facilitate their trade show booths. Okay. So I went from like doing like retail store stuff and just through like a couple of random interactions, <clears throat> I started working with guys that were building trade show booths, uh, for Patagonia and then eventually for Black Diamond and taking on quite a bit of responsibility to work with marketing, whoops, to uh, identify what they needed at the next booth, uh, you know, for the next trade show. Yeah, so I was doing all this trade show booth work for Black Diamond and designing and fabricating, you know, ski displays or backpack displays and working with a creative team to make this stuff happen. And I was kind of like the DIY, like, okay, we need this, I'm going to draw it out and either have it made or, or make it myself. Um, and kind of because of that experience and those connections, I started to become aware that there were all these photographers that were, you know, we were hanging all these photographers' works in our booths and that sort of stuff. And I was like, huh, this is really interesting. Like, I'm still climbing a ton. I'm still going, I'm going to the mountains. Like, um, I began to connect these dots that there was an opportunity there because I'm working with these marketing departments already. I see that we're buying photographs. I'm going climbing all the time in incredible spots. 
And so I just started to take more photos of it and I started to sell them to those marketing departments uh, for that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, basically my first client was Black Diamond, you know, that's where I worked and I was starting to get my shots in their catalogs and in their uh, trade show booths and that sort of stuff. Got it. Um, so that's kind of when the photography came back around for me, you know, after having been a yearbook photographer and, you know, it was film and it was processing, but obviously I didn't have a dark room when I was on the road, you know, I wasn't like Ansel Adams or something like that, but it just sort of faded out for me. And then at a certain point I picked it back up and I still had that same little camera that my, it was my brother's camera, you know, and I started to shoot that slide film and yeah. So when I started to think more about going back to college, um, I wanted to study more for photojournalism. Mm. Um, but at the university of Utah, there wasn't really a photojournalism department. There was an art department and they had photography, but I wasn't really thinking about it like art. I was thinking about it more about storytelling and I was really interested in what was going on with human impacts on our planet because I saw it firsthand, you know, as a climber, we're in these really out there spots. And, you know, if you're observant, you notice that, wow, there didn't used to be a mine there, but now there is. And wow, I'm driving around out West and I see these really dramatic clear cuts and you just see these scars and then you're writing in a notebook and then you're like, you're putting two and two together and you're like, Hmm, you know, I'm really having a direct impact like on this planet that I think is so beautiful. And that is such a obviously important habitat. I mean, this is where we live. This is our nest, but I'm fucking it up, <laughs> you know? So I, I start to think a lot about that and to go down a certain track um, with the end goal being photojournalism. Um, that's what I was thinking, you know, so I was studying uh, a lot of political science. Um, I was studying Spanish. I thought that was really important to, I'd always want to learn a second language, but I never took that seriously in high school. I had Spanish class, but it was just a joke, you know, mm -hmm. just something to make it, just something to make it through. And then I was studying photography in the communications department and working with some cool professors to, you know, learn about visual storytelling and that sort of stuff. Um, and that was right when, you know, we were still in the dark room and that sort of stuff, but then digital cameras were coming into it. And so I, started learning a lot about the software involved with digital photo processing and managing. And I worked at the school newspaper, the daily Chronicle at the university of Utah as, you know, one of the photo editors. And so I, this, this wealth of experience and just kept on happening just every day. It was something new and I would go shoot an assignment for the daily paper and, you know, or I would assign another photographer to go and shoot it. And, and, you know, they say you learn a lot by teaching and I learned a lot by sort of managing other photographers and seeing what they would bring in and 
seeing that they were really working hard to like try to get a creative angle or something. And I was like, why don't we just focus on what, or, you know, working with other photographers at the daily paper, I started to see that, you know, what most people needed to focus on were the fundamentals, like, let's get your exposure, right. Or like, Mm. let's try to, let's try to get the subject and focus and that sort of stuff. Like you don't have to worry about as much about like trying to make it artistic, but like, let's just focus on the basics, you know? Hmm. Um, so I learned a lot about it, about photography from sort of managing other photographers. And What allowed you to see that? Was it, was that just kind of inherent? I mean, was it just obvious being exposed to so many different photographs and, and noticing like, here's why this one stands out, you know, this one's slightly out of focus, which is why this doesn't work. W- w- were there, yeah. how had you learned that, that ability to, to distinguish those things? Uh, it was just that it was my responsibility to get a good picture for the story. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have time to take the picture myself, you know, another photographer would do it. And if they didn't do a good job, ultimately it was my responsibility so that's just the pragmatic way of working through it. You know, like we need a good shot and we don't have it. So next time let's work on getting it a little better. I was going to ask you if you had any, any advice for aspiring photographers. It's such a different world these days. You know, anyone with an iPhone 12 thinks that they're a photographer and some of them probably are. And then other people really pursue it as a craft and, and really learn the equipment and invest in it. Um, it's probably a lot easier to get some of those basics right. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like the equipment and the technology handles that for for us a little bit more nowadays. Do you have any advice for people that are aspiring photographers, either in climbing or outside of climbing? What I see happen with people that start out with photography and then aren't able to continue it, it's not that they aren't capable of becoming good photographers, you know, it's just that circumstances catch up to them. You know, they they wind up where the overhead costs of maintaining their life is more than they're able to make at, at photography. And they wind up having to get another job. Um, so it's basically just, you know, climbing. The climbing lifestyle is a great lifestyle for being a photographer. It teaches you that you're going to, live cheaply so that you can pursue this goal of climbing and the same applies to photography like if you want to be a photographer you just need to keep taking pictures which means you can't let anything else get in the way of taking those pictures and so it means you have to make decisions that enable photography rather than enable these tangents that get in the way Mm. so it means like don't have relationships it means like (laughs) you know yeah i mean brass tacks you know don't have you know don't have expensive hobbies don't buy expensive cars i mean unless you have the money i mean honestly to just be like independently wealthy is a great model for becoming a photographer (laughs) like if you don't really need the money become a photographer that's my advice, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you really need the money, becoming a photographer can be kind of hard. It's expensive mm. and it takes a lot of time. 
uh, time, which you're not making money doing something else. So, Do you see people in the field holding down stable jobs um, and being able to become really good photographers on the side? Hmm. I mean, I think I'm a decent example of that. Okay. Where I was doing this other, you know, creative work, building trade show booths and developing my photography at the same time. So it is possible. Maybe maybe uh, treat it like a side hustle until it becomes the main hustle. I think that's that's pretty good. That's a pretty good plan. I'm going to put together Ben's top three photography tips. And the first one is just don't have relationships. <laughs> That's the number one. That's my takeaway from this conversation. <laughs> uh, that's too bad. I, to tell you the truth, I have great relationships. And, you know, what a photographer's main job is, is to create opportunities to take interesting photographs. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You can't do that without, without relationships. You know, yeah. like what, what a photographer needs most besides a camera is access to interesting things. Hmm. I want to ask a patron question. I reached out to some people that listen to the show and got a few questions for you. And this question is from Elliot. Elliot was curious, do you have any tips for someone who wants to bring their camera on longer Alpine routes while going fast and light? Uh, do you recommend a smaller camera setup or a specific type of backpack or just ditch the camera and enjoy the experience? Any recommendations for him? My usual recommendation to people that are asking me about cameras is to get the smallest thing you can. And for most people, that means, I mean, use the camera on your phone. Yeah, they're pretty uh, good these days. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't like that answer. Instead of, you know, an honest answer, what they hear is, oh, I don't think you can do it anyway, or something like that. You know, mm. they hear it as like a challenge, like, oh, he doesn't think I'm a photographer. Or he doesn't think I'm serious about it. But what I really mean is that stuff's heavy. And it depends on where you're at with your climbing, you know. Um, for, you know, if you're going to, go climbing alpine routes fast and light well are you looking to go climbing or are you looking to take pictures um and how good at both of those things are you can you multitask and climb hard i mean nobody said hard but um can you climb alpine style fast and light and multitask with this other thing that you're trying to do you know it's climbing alpine routes is a serious enough endeavor but I think it's worth just focusing on that, to tell you the truth. Mm. Um, maybe you get to a point where you're experienced enough where you think, you know, maybe I'm going to take this camera. Yeah, get yourself um, a Sony RX7. Get yourself like a really high-end point shoot that shoots raw files and um, think about that. Something very small. And then it goes from there, you know, the backstory on a lot of the alpine climbing photographs that you'll see is that there is a backstory. It's not just a couple of people out there mm. and whoops, I got a great photo. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of production going on with these things, you know, 
uh, teams of four or teams of five are pretty common with this stuff. Um, so, Can you paint a little bit more of a picture of how that might work? Like if you have a trip or a photo or a series of photos in mind that you want to capture in an extreme environment like an alpine route, yeah, what might that look like? How might that play out? Yeah, well, I mean, I think climbing with the wild bunch is a good example. Um, I mean, we're talking about like top tier climbers, you know, Nico's on sighted 514. Um, so when he wants to go climb like some 512 cracks, it's not that hard for him necessarily, you mm. know, he can run it out. He can be like way above his gear and still feel comfortable. And so you need to assemble a team that is right for the job. Um, another really important aspect is that you, if you want to take photographs of people, you need to find people that want to have their photograph taken. <laughs> okay. Because what you find is that you whip your camera out a around a bunch of climbers and a lot of people just don't aren't into it. They don't want to burden their experience with this outside agenda, you know? So you need to be really clear about the people that you're going out with. You, you need to make sure that they know what's happening, mm. that there's another agenda today. Like, yeah, we're going to go climb this mountain, but like, we're really doing it to get the photos. Mm. Not everybody wants to do that. I'm really jealous and I really, um, guard carefully my own personal climbing experience. Hmm. So the last thing I want is to think like, oh, I'm going out climbing with my buddy. And then I show up and I realize that like, he really is trying to go take photos today. I'm like, what the hell? Like we're trying to just go climbing today. So you really just need to make sure like climbing is precious for people. Like not everybody is trying to be a pro climber and influencer type content creator people are really just need to be out climbing in nature and they're trying to blow off steam from the rest of their life. You know, climbing first is this thing that we enjoy. It's this pursuit of wilderness experience and it means a lot to us as humans. And you don't want to get in the way with that, with some photo agenda. Mm. Do you still mix and match the two? Do you still pull out a light camera or a phone and just take some quick pictures while you're having your own climbing experience? Or do you, do you ever intentionally just put it in the bottom of your bag? Like, I'm just not even going to think about it, not going to attempt to capture photos today. I'm just going to be here and climb. It's a little bit of both. Um, if I'm with the right crew, I'll climb the Hulk with my SLR. Okay. Um, you know, I can climb at a pretty high level with a decent sized camera on me. So, you know, I'm ready for that. But at the same time, I've been asked like, Ben, you're this climbing photographer, but we never see you with your camera out climbing. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You're a nurse, but like, I don't see you in scrubs, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, they're separate things. It's separate. It's, you know, they're, you know, Patagonia and all these, and Patagonia and some of these other companies, they've sort of made 
they've built their brand around these unexpected moments that occur when you're just out climbing with your buddies. Um, it started out pure and simple, you know, yeah, photographers in the early days would just capture these unexpected moments. But then now that that's part of the formula for success, a lot of the outdoor photographers are going out and just posing down these unexpected moments. Mm. So, you know, a little bit of that simplicity and purity is lost. I mean, you know. So yeah. no one really, no one really wants to see behind the curtain. You know, it's not pretty back there. <laughs> right. I, well, I think pe people want to assume that it's all just these like unscripted kind of like accidental things that happen and just this, these magic moments, but really there's a lot of work that goes into it. Right. And I mean, maybe the irony is that the, the image that comes across the visual story that is told or shared when you prepare, when you keep it separate and plan for it like that does feel like such a more authentic and real and raw moment, you know, like when you capture that amazing photo in the Alpine, it feels like you're there on the sharp end, like doing the thing. It's really cool, you know? And whereas if you, if you see, yeah, like you said, the behind the curtains messy, if you see some of that context filled in, it takes some of that magic away. So it is, it is interesting how there's a, a funny irony there. I have one more question from a listener about photography, and then I want to circle back to the wild bunch. Uh, this question is from Tim. Tim asks, what location or climber is Ben most proud of filming or photographing? And I kind of want to add an extension to that. Um, any trips, any routes, any specific experience that really stands out uh, from your photography or, or filmmaking? Yeah, I, I would just say, as I was really getting into more adventurous pursuits, uh, you know, taking my climbing from, you know, the, the crags and the competitions into the mountains, you know, as that process was happening, I started to make myself available for some expeditions. And, you know, I went to China with some friends and we put up some new routes um, in the Sichuan province near the Tibetan border. Um, that was a really amazing trip. Um, and then just after that, if I'm getting my timeline correct, um, a good friend of mine named Andrew McLean invited me to go on a ski expedition to Patagonia. Andrew at that time was way into using kites to propel ourselves along these glaciers on our skis. Oh, wow. So, you know, I had heard of Patagonia. I had seen the pictures, but I didn't know the difference between Torres del Paine or Cerro Torre. Like, I didn't know how it all laid out on a map. And, you know, Google Earth wasn't really, like, as much of a ready resource at that point. So, you know, going on that trip with Andrew and our other partner was this character named Bean Bowers, who has passed away. Um, but we, we flew to Shaltan, we packed up a month's worth of food and our skis on sleds. 
we hiked it all back to Paso Marconi and we spent the month out on the Southern Patagonia ice cap kiting around and skiing mountains back there and skiing from the Col de Esperanza on Cerro Torre and skiing just in these outrageous locations. And for me, it was an adventure, but it was also a job. Like we got the article published in Powder Magazine, Andrew wrote it. Um, but it, it was really an eye-opening experience for me. Like it was, you know, I had climbed mountains already. I had already been doing this stuff for a little while, but to be out there for the whole month and just to watch the weather roll in and just to feel so humbled by all of it happening around us where, you know, we might have plans to ski in the morning, but you know, you just can't cause the weather's so bad. And you just realize that you're just kind of a part of this thing and you're just barely hanging on <laughs> um, and feeling lucky to be there and developing this sense of awe and wonder at it all. Like watching the light roll through every day and watching the way the weather affected our ability to move and just realizing that, you know, the planet kind of dictates what we're doing. I think that that type of expedition life and putting yourself out there for long periods of time, you realize you don't really have that much control over what's happening around us. And you can just sort of let that go and just kind of roll with it um, and take it as it comes instead of like enforcing your agenda on everything. And that first trip to Patagonia, that was the real eye opener for me. That was like breakthrough, mm. you know, a month later when we stumbled back into Shaltan, 15 pounds lighter and <laughs> just grizzled, you know, um, I, that was really something like those were, I realized at that point that those are the moments that, that you really live for is just like, when you're done with an expedition, that's when it feels really great to relax. You know, that's when I can really relax is when I've pulled something really big off. Um, you can lay in the grass in the sun and just not have a care in the world because of what you've just put yourself through. Hmm. And maybe that's something that humans used to deal with on the daily basis when we were more subsisting and that sort of stuff, you know, we could find that satisfaction of these simple moments, but you know, at this point we're kind of bombarded by all of this media and everything. It's, it's probably a little harder for us to relax now. Yeah. I'd, I'd say, I'd say it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Thanks for that story. And that's a really good answer. Um, I have another nickname I want to ask you about from Katie, and I'm curious if this is from the same trip. It sounds like it might be, but can you tell me how you got the nickname Dina Fit Dangler? Ah, uh, Dina Fit Dangler, Ben the Dangler. <laughs> <laughs> that one does have a really clear origin. Um, that was another trip with Andrew McLean. Um, this was a ski expedition in the Wrangell St. Elias National Park, trying to ski a mountain called Mount Bona, which is not easy to get to um, unless you know a really legendary bush pilot named Paul Klaus, um, who flew us into a, a glacier base camp 
myself, Andrew McLean and Grant Giles, who's a Kiwi, really great skier and endurance athlete. Um, we got flown into an Alpine base camp, glacier base camp, and quickly realized trying to ski Mount Bona wasn't going to happen. There were just all these huge crevasses and even just right around our camp out on the flatlands, it was just hazardous to venture around out there. But we did a fair bit of skiing uh, and we, we took to skiing the smaller noon attacks and mountains that were around us. And um, we started to get a lot more comfortable doing so. Uh, even in this sort of hazardous environment. And the, one of the last days we were going to ski uh, before our pickup, we skied a couple hours. We, we hiked a couple hours away from our camp and we rope up on the glaciers. And then at a certain point, we feel like we're in more safe terrain where we're on this non-glaciated noon attack uh, a noon attack is kind of a glacier mountain. That's not really like a, a mountain necessarily. They can have a few thousand feet of vertical relief, but it's not like the big peaks that you're surrounded by. They're just these kind of lesser features. Okay. A geologist could probably give a better explanation, but, um, you know, we left our glacier gear behind, uh, down what we felt like, was the right spot to do that. And we booted up this mountain with our skis on our backs. And this was another thing I was shooting at this point with mountain hardware. Andrew was a mountain hardware athlete. And um, we just had this great light when we got to the top of this peak. And um, I kind of skied over to get a oblique angle on these guys skiing this fall line. And they skied down a couple thousand vert and then we got the radios out and I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to ski down right here. They're like, okay, looks good. And I start pushing across. I'm at the top of this ridge and what had been really great light turned into really gray overcast light, which if you're into snow sports means really bad visibility, not really able to see depth or you know, texture, all of which are things that help when you're in <laughs> avalanche or a uh, glacier terrain. So long story short, I was skiing across the top of this ridge uh, to get to my line and broke through a snow bridge out of a crevasse that I couldn't see and flipped upside down with a big ski pack on and then my camera pack in the front of me on hanging off my chest, uh, flipped upside down. It all happened really fast. I became aware that I was in a crevasse, but that I was being suspended by one ski oh. hanging like a bat <laughs> from one toe piece of one Dinafit binding. Oh my God. I, this is like a climber centric podcast, so I'm not sure if people are really going to get what I mean. Uh, you know, with skiing, you know, a lot of people think of like lifts and taking alpine skis and having the heel locked in and everything. But when you're skiing mountains, you use these alpine touring skis and the bindings 
have releasable heels that allow you to hike. Um, but then when you get to the top, you step the heel back in. And um, But there is this pivot point in the toe. There's a toe piece and a heel piece. And for me, in this situation, I flipped upside down. The heel released, but the toe piece held. And that was what was keeping me from falling into this crevasse. And it was a pretty interesting experience. Um, <laughs> I, I, you really just become aware of your position and you could never imagine how you might respond until you're in a position like that. And I never visualize this like, oh, what will I do if I fall in a crevasse? Or like, how will I feel? Like, will I become hysterical or uh, what will happen? And it was interesting to just be there and think, all right, what are you going to do next? Um, it was awkward. I was upside down. My torso is hanging out. Uh, from the snow bridge. The snow bridge is like a meter deep, which means that my legs are still kind of encased in snow, but my upper body is free hanging out into this blue room that I can just see this pale blue light disappearing down into the depths of this mountain. <laughs> and the crevasse itself must have been 20 feet wide is a huge feature, but it's just covered in winter snowfall. And Really, I mean, it was, we made so many mistakes that, you know, allowed that to happen, you know, like not only did we leave our glacier gear behind, but I had chosen to ski over to get this photo angle into terrain that we hadn't previously been in. Mm. The light was bad. The visibility was bad. You know, so many mistakes. Um but so I'm just hanging there. I'm like, well, how am I going to get myself out of this? And then I remembered I had this radio. And so I radioed down to Andrew and Grant, like, Hey, you guys, um, I'm in a really bad situation up here. I am in this crevasse. I need your help. And Andrew came back. Amazingly, I'm hanging in a crevasse, but the radio still worked. Um, so that was kind of my first choice was to try to see the radio works uh before i tried to like self-rescue yeah so andrew came back like hey did you say you need help and i'm like yeah i'm basically dead already like if you guys can get back up here this is going to be amazing like come on back up but they're like you know a long ski pitch below me on a steep mountain so they have to take their skis off boot back up the mountain Fortunately, these guys are like ski race, you know, adventure athletes. So they hurried on up there and then saw the predicament that I was in, had to put themselves at risk to get on the downhill side of the crevasse to be able to get to me. And then we figured out a good way, you know, for, to, for them to safely kind of extricate me. Um, what was that? <laughs> what was the safe way? <laughs> well, we, it's hard to we imagine. Did, yeah. Like I said, we had left the ropes and like the glacier kit behind, but we still had ice axes and those guys, maybe they had a little bit of a cordelette or something. So we just sort of made it work, you know, um, one of, you know, we were kind of, as I was hanging in the crevasse, I'm checking in with Andrew and those guys, like, 
the, the crazy part about it was the unexpected part. Well, there were a lot of unexpected parts, but as far as like the, the personal journey for me was that I stayed really calm the entire time. Hmm. I was actually hanging there in a very precarious, like near death experience type of way, but I wasn't panicking. I, I could just clearly think to myself, like, look, dude, if you're going to die, like the last thing you want to be is like freaking out in your last moments. So like, wow, it was a, it was a really relaxed type of moment. And, um, I didn't want to bother them either. I didn't want to freak them out. I knew they had a big job to do to climb this mountain. So I wasn't like radioing them like help. Oh my God. Or anything like that. I was just like radio silence. And they checked in with me. They're like, Ben, I'm like, Hey, I'm here. Uh, just <laughs> still hanging around, just hanging here. <laughs> um, you know, hanging from one leg for a half an hour is not something I'd ever really thought about doing. So I wasn't really <laughs> ready for what that was going to feel like. Uh, and it hurt. Like it was not great. Like my leg worth was killing me. And, um, you know, but still I just kept it together I radioed to Andrew. I'm like, I'm like, Andrew, where are you guys at? They're like, we're just making it to the top. I'm like, okay, be careful. You know, you're going to have to ski across the crevasse to get to me. But they knew it was there. They chose a better line. Um, they're like, okay, we see you. I'm like, okay, what needs to happen is somebody needs to take my picture. <laughs> and Andrew's like, okay, we'll see about that. And he thought, you know, later on, we're talking about it. He's like, yeah, I thought like, oh, I'll take his picture. You know, it'll be funny. We'll post it or whatever. But in real time, he got there and he completely forgot about the picture. He's like, you are so fucked. Like, I thought, I'm not going to take this picture because it would suck so bad for me to take a picture of you. Here's Ben alive. He's standing right. He's like right there. And then the snow bridge collapses and you die. <laughs> Like that's not going to happen. So there's no great photo, but there is a pretty funny video out there online. Uh, I think people can just search like Bendito Dinafit Dangle. And it's like <laughs> a really, really crappy kind of point and shoot, really bad quality. Uh, but people can get a sense and you can see the crevasse and you can see the hole I was in and uh, you can get it. You can kind of see it, but yeah, but that name the Dina Fit Dangler that has gotten thrown around a little bit. And I, I had never heard it until one day at the ski resort, I was there with my friend and uh, his friend came up and like, Oh, you're the Dina Fit Dangler. And I was like, yes, that's awesome. <laughs> so, that's funny, funny that your nickname, like to think about your nickname, scared guy, yeah. you're hanging upside down by one toe piece for half an hour feeling as calm as you're talking to me now i mean that's that's pretty good yeah <laughs> that's a pretty good reaction for scared guy yeah i mean you put yourself out there you just don't know how you're going to respond until these things actually happen and do you remember yeah. what you felt when you were safely back on firm ground firm snow i felt like my legs were going to explode hmm you know, um, and, you know, I was uninjured. I had to take my boots off and sit there for a while. But, 
you know, it's getting dark. Uh, this weather's moving in. We've got to get back like five miles to camp across the glacier. And, you know, it's not just like a scenic stroll. I mean, it's very scenic, but it's also very dangerous. And so there wasn't a whole lot of time to like process in that particular moment, but we skied down, we got our ropes, we got roped back up. And then um, it was a long walk back to camp and we're a rope team of three and we're crossing this glacier and I was in the back and I was just losing it at that point. Like the adrenaline had worn off. We're just walking across a flat glacier, rope to my friends. At that point, we were safe. And I mean, I was just totally losing it. What do you mean? Uh, I was just bawling. Yeah. Yeah. It all just kind of came rushing into me, like how serious that was and how many mistakes we made. And, you know, the fact that I was lucky to be there still. Hmm. I'm curious how you've processed that sense or just how you think about risk, how you think about death, how you think about all of these serious things. I mean, with all of these pretty real adventures that you've done and continue to do. And I mean, in this conversation already, I think you've mentioned two friends of yours that you've done trips with that have since passed away. So I'm sure that it's ever present uh, in some capacity. How do you think about that? And how, how have you processed situations like that and carried those lessons, you know, moving forward. How do you, how do you think about, about the risk? Yeah. I mean, it's really sad. We are, you know, starting out with like in Tennessee with like no climbing community, hardly. And, you know, that was just the kind of a developing, you know, climbing was just really developing and, and becoming like a cohesive whole at that point as a kid, you know, and, and then going out West and meeting all these great climbers and, realizing that there was this great community you know in the world of and there were all these people doing all these great things and it's really sad that uh, a lot of the great climbers from our generation have passed on you know um so that's one thing i think about it i mean i miss dean potter and i miss these other people you know that i was friends with um along the way and and it's too bad that they're not still here to continue to have an influence on people because the stories are, you know, not being told firsthand at this point, they're being told by intermediaries. And I'm not sure that people are getting the whole story, you know? <laughs> so it's sort of too bad. They've lost their own voice. Um, and we, you know, we've lost that influence, but, um, uh, Nowadays, you know, I'm older. I feel lucky that I've gotten to check a tremendous number of boxes on a life list that never existed. Mm. Um, I have, like I said earlier, there's this positive feedback loop, you know, you kind of move towards what you're good at and where your friends are and where your opportunities are. And I've done that and I've gotten lucky not only am I alive, but I've also made a living at it. And um, so now, you know, I'm married to Katie. She's my main squeeze and my main <laughs> climbing partner. But she hasn't had all of those experiences. She hasn't almost died in the mountains. And so, 
there are times when her goals and aspirations push me past my comfort level Hmm. nowadays, you know? Um, So it forces me to examine my real motivations. Like, you know, you owe it to your climbing partners to be really committed to your objective. You, you owe it to your climbing partners to really want to be there because things aren't going to go well when you're in the Alpine, like a lot of unexpected and dangerous stuff is going to happen. And if you're just kind of half into it, you're not respecting the situation and you're not respecting your partners. Hmm. So that's, that's a big consideration for people. Um, And I think about that all the time. So, you know, I'm constantly having to tell Katie, like, yeah, that sounds like a really fun objective for you and your girlfriend to go do, (laughs) uh, because I'm not going to go with you, you know, (laughs) and it might not be anything groundbreaking or a big deal, but I might just rather hang out and work on my shed project here on the property, you know? Um, so you kind of have to, I, I just have to consider what am I interested in? What are my true motivations at this point? Because climbing is really serious. I mean, I know it's portrayed on TV, so to speak, as this really fun laughing experience all the time. And it should be, you, you should be enjoying it if you're going to go do it, but it's also pretty serious, you know, and you got to have a lot of respect for how much work good climbers put into it. And I think, I think a lot of people look at social media and they look, they see that, Oh, this is, this seems easy. I should be able to do this. So-and-so just did such and such. And they said it was no big deal or whatever. And so, Oh, I'm going to go do it. But they're really have no business being there. Mm. Um, I tend to want to stack the odds in my favor, you know? Like I said, if I'm going to go out and shoot some photographs, uh, I want to make sure that, you know, they're wearing the right clothes, they're the right people, they're, you know, that I'm going to I'm going to get the photographs that I want for the goal that I have with it. And the same goes with climbing. Like if I have a climbing objective, I usually over-prepare for it. You know, I'm training for it, I'm fit for it, I've got the gear for it that stuff doesn't look great in an Instagram story most of the time. Mm. Like, but the details matter, you know, you need to do your homework. You need to put the time in. Um, yeah. The top is only halfway, you know, mm. um, part of what I'm interested in now and part of a way that I contribute to society with my climbing skills is that I volunteer on the search and rescue team around here. in Inyo County, California. And, you know, it's search and rescue isn't for everyone. It's, you know, I used to have the sort of idea that like the last thing you want is to get rescued by a search and rescue team. I mean, if you're getting rescued by a search and rescue team, not only have you had an accident, but chances are these guys aren't like as experienced, uh, you know, and, it just doesn't have the best reputation. But what I see now from being involved in search and rescue is that 
these people, men and women, are just complete badasses. Um, they're very skilled at what they do. They train really hard. And what they really want to do is help people that need it. And I think that's really interesting. It's it's a way for me to put my lifetime of skills in service for something that's not just about me. You know, I can go and help people out. Um, where was I taking that exactly? Um, I'll never know. We'll never know. But uh, <laughs> uh, what were we talking about before, though? We're talking um, about risk and. Katie's objectives and kind of the push and pull there. Yeah. Um, respecting uh, the Alpine. Yeah. I think getting involved with search and rescue. Ah, here, here you go. <laughs> On our search and rescue team around here, there's some legendary people. Um, this guy, Bob Harrington, who is responsible for a lot of the first ascents around here. He's one of the first climbers in the Owens river gorge and, you know, our president, Todd Vogel, just their, the list of things they've accomplished is really impressive. And because of those guys and what they've done and then their service-minded attitude for these things uh, and, and helping people, I decided to get involved with it um, because I've seen the contribution that they make and I was inspired by that. And, you know, none of us are getting any younger. And I just see that it's a way to contribute and that these guys aren't going to be able to keep doing it at a really high level mm. forever. And that a younger generation needs to start to take over. That's cool. Um, so I thought it was a kind of a cool way for me to contribute, you know, and then as I've gotten to know these guys, I've learned that they've had close calls. They've had near misses. And I think that experience for all of us contributes to how we think about risk and what we're willing to do and how far we're willing to go out in pursuit of that edge. And being involved with search and rescue has definitely put me back into a frame of mind where I'm trying to mitigate my own risk a lot more. So for example, I don't want to get hit by rockfall on a mountain and then be left there while my partner has to rappel down and run back to cell phone service. Meanwhile, 24 hours later, I'm still hanging there with like a broken body and that sort of thing. So I'm much more likely to have an in reach kind of thing with me to be able, you know, not only help myself, but also to be able to help someone else that might have an accident. Um, Cause I think more and more, that's what you're going to run into is, you know, there's a lot of inexperienced people out there doing these things. They might think they have experience. They might be able to climb 514, but you know, they aren't that good at placing gear or they didn't realize that, you know, there was rock fall or that there's all these objective hazards and things that you have no control over. Mm. So you might be able to help someone else. Um, you know, that said, I, I just have to say that those in reach type things are totally overused at this point. Um, our search and rescue coordinators here are just totally overwhelmed by the amount of like non-emergency calls that they get. Mm. Because guess what? 
people that have very little experience in the mountains, they go up and they try to do these lofty objectives and they get caught out overnight and they think that they're going to die of hypothermia, but it's 55 degrees overnight. And, you know, a lot of people are just up there scared and hungry and they think they need a rescue, but actually they just need to suck it up and walk out in the morning. Mm. Um, so we run into that a lot as well, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the latest iteration in my sort of adventure career is putting my experience to use in the community, trying to help people out. That's awesome. I wanted to ask this earlier. You were describing, you know, spending more time in the mountains, paying attention to what's going on around you, seeing the clear cuts, and then, you know, making the connection with writing in this notebook and using paper. How have you, have you integrated any of that into your professional life? Is there is there anything that you've tried to do to do what you can from an environmental angle uh, to mitigate your own impact or to offset it in any way? Is there anything that you've been working on as far as that goes? Sure. I mean, we have um, a bunch of solar panels on our office here, you know, that we bought and installed. And so we're not paying for energy anymore. You know, we're, we're uh, our carbon footprint, so to speak, is a lot lower than it used to be um my pet peeve has always been driving you know mm. i hate having to, i i i live in the middle of town because i don't like driving to the grocery store you know i want to ride my bike and and uh i think all of that sort of stuff makes a big difference just think about you know especially right now i mean i think people are starting to have firsthand experience in what it means to live in a time of climate change yeah. now that we have fires and these floods and people are people are starting to catch on you know this isn't just like a conspiracy theory this shit's really happening and i think making some adjustments to how much you really need to be driving to get to our recreation destination you know what i mean I think, uh, you know, Katie's a nutritionist and she works in whole foods nutrition. Um, and within that kind of comes this concept of eating in season, you know, where you're, you know, you eat apples when it's apple season, you know, and, and you eat greens when they're being produced in the garden and all of that sort of thing. And recreation has that side of it too, where, you know, you can kind of recreate in season two, you know, you can ski when there's snow and you can climb when there's good conditions. And, you know, I think there's going to be some adjustments to our habits and what we feel like we're entitled to. Mm. Um, I think at this point, we're all still willing to drive somewhere to go climbing because we think we're entitled to it. Um, but that might not always be the case. Yeah. Um, you know, there is something bigger going on than just our enjoyment. <laughs> um, and I think that might start to catch on. Cool. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, yeah. I, I feel this has been an amazing conversation and it feels like 
we're winding down in a sense, but I, I want to circle back because I feel like I have to check this box. Yeah. You've, you've mentioned the wild bunch a couple of times, but um, I'd love it if you would more formally introduce the wild bunch, tell us who it is. And I'd love to hear how that formed, where that group came from, how you guys got together. And I'd love to hear about some of your uh, maybe favorite or most memorable adventures with that group of people. Sure. The Wild Bunch is a group comprised of myself, Nico Favres, Olivier Favres, the brothers, and Sean Villanueva. The name was given to us by Captain Reverend Bob Shepton, <laughs> who's a octogenarian Scottish retired reverend and boat owner and captain. <laughs> that's, um, that's an amazing list of, of qualities. <laughs> I know. He, Bob is the real sort of gem. As far as I'm concerned, uh, Bob is like really what made those expeditions so unique. I mean, a lot of people go on expeditions with people their own age uh, but not that many people are going on expeditions with an 80-year-old <laughs> who really is like a 20-year-old and shows no signs of slowing down. Um, Bob is really such a great example for how you really want to live your life. Um, he's lived a very full life. Uh, let's see. How should we do this? Um I think I first met Sean in the Red River Gorge in 2002. Um, I had been living in Salt Lake City, and my buddy Jason Sterner and I decided to go to the Red for the fall. And I hadn't climbed there since I was a kid. And we were just doing that standard camp out at Miguel's and just kind of sport climb all the time and, you know, that sort of thing. And Sean was 18. He was on a year-long trip after high school. You know, Sean's Irish, but his mother had worked for the UN, which is based in Brussels. And so he had, was a Belgian citizen and, you know, had done school in Belgium and everything. And so he was traveling. He was at the Red. And this was right around the time slacklining was becoming kind of popular. And I had seen the first, my first slackline was with Dean Potter and Waco Tanks. And Dean was like stretching up slack lines with his Volkswagen Jetta. And like, there's not like big trees and Waco tanks or anything. So he was like <laughs> sort of bending the rules and attaching things to these little stumpy trees and Waco and stuff. And I was kind of like blown away, but at the red, they had these big trees and I bought this hundred foot piece of webbing and Sean and I began rigging these slack lines up and we began learning to walk these slack lines. And we would climb together and that sort of thing. But, you know, I had another climbing partner, but Sean would fit in and we would, we would cruise around and we became friends and, you know, but this was, you know, I'm just going to say, go out on a limb here and say, like, I didn't have an email address at that time. Like social media wasn't a thing. And like, we didn't stay in touch, you know, but it was just like, we were buddies at that time. And then he was gone. And then, um, many years passed and, I was in Squamish and my friend Thomasina Pigeon 
we were hanging out sharing a campsite and uh she was like hey do you know these belgian guys that are around here you should meet them because i was i was trying to climb hard cracks still you know and i was like trying to find people to go to climb you know whatever i could I, cobra crack was not on my radar like that was kind of above my pay grade uh for what i was looking for but i was looking for the 513 cracks and thomasina was like i oh, should hook up with these guys and nico happened to walk by and so i i introduced myself and we're chit-chatting and you know of course i was into photography he was climbing on the cobra crack and i was like oh maybe i'll come up with you and take some photos on the cobra crack and he was way into it um and he's like oh you should meet my climbing partner sean and and so we go find sean and it, it just became clear suddenly they already knew sean <laughs> uh, but i didn't remember that until like you know we saw each other and then we remembered and then we were like wow like, we oh that's sean okay yeah yeah so then we remembered that we knew each other you know but there had been no contact in between those years it had probably been 12 years or so you know <laughs> wow. completed out. but you know i i wasn't traveling with anyone at that point so i just kind of dove in to sean and nico land and they were on their own trip and um traveling in north america and they did a lot of crazy stuff there's a video online you can see of that trip that those guys put together i think it's called the power of jam okay uh, that's like a, a little glimpse into their world that's been 15 years ago now but um so anyway i started shooting those guys on the cobra crack we started climbing together and uh you know i got some really great shots of Nico, who got the second ascent of that thing. Um, then we wound up going to the Bugaboos together, and we just had a great vibe. Um, climbed together in the Bugaboos, did some first free ascent type stuff, got epic in some storms. Um, and then I had a trip planned to go on an expedition to India with Freddie Wilkinson and Pat Goodman uh, and Janet wilkinson who's freddie's wife and so you know i left the i left sean and nico in canada and then i drove down to salt lake city and flew to india with those guys um and we had a, a very successful trip there and climbed a first ascent and had a lot of good good adventures but when i got back to north america those sean and nico were still in yosemite uh sorry when I got back from India, Sean and Nico were in Indian Creek. Um, so I drove down from Salt Lake to Indian Creek. And that was the first time I met Mason Earl. Because okay. Mason, Mason had met up with them. And so we had like a couple of weeks together all in Indian Creek. And I was like, Mason Earl, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, watch him cruise the 513s. It was just incredible, you know? Hmm. And he was a little more camera shy. But like Nico and those guys were like always down to make a picture happen you know they realized that that was kind of a part of their obligations as professional athletes was to sort of make themselves available for that and they they were way into it but you know mason he was living in colorado and so you know we left him and then we drove to yosemite and as a team though mason Nico, Sean, and I, we put together this plan and we decided to go to Torres del Paine that winter together. And uh, we did. Circumstances were such that there was a, 
myself, Mason, Nico, Sean, and another guy named Pete Rhodes from the UK that came along. So Mason and Pete wound up climbing together, but I wound up going on the central tower of Pine with Nico and Sean. And we spent something like two weeks doing the first free ascent of the east face of the central tower okay. on, the South, on the South African route, which turned into like a, you know, sort of a maybe 12 plus type grade six big wall, you know, a couple of big port ledge camps and fixing ropes above it and glacier travel and epic Patagonia weather and all that stuff. And I got probably one of the top five photos of my career, which is Sean <laughs> climbing this epic off with uh, high above the port ledges and high above the glacier um, on that trip. And, but, you know, when I go on trips with those guys, I'm not just like the dead weight. Like I'm a participating member. Like I, I'm leading my pitches too, you know, like I'll have my project pitches and we just swap leads, you know, there's three of us. So like every third pitch is mine. And, um, you know, I get into the spirit of that, but then, you know, I also will shoot those guys on their pitches and that sort of thing. And, you know, if I get in over my head on a certain pitch, like Nico will usually take it for me or whatever or if it's a particularly grovelly suffering like wet chimney or something then sean usually wants to have it anyway so <laughs> um, i just found that i fit in pretty good my my adventurous instincts like allowed me to contribute um to this really unique team and um of course these guys are always playing music and everything so i started finding trying to find ways to fit in with that so i started playing the harmonica Oh, great. On that trip, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, kind of got me into the spirit of things. Um, and then, you know, that trip was like three months long. I spoke Spanish. And so I wasn't getting a lot of time to speak Spanish around those guys. So I, after we finished our central tower climb, you know, I went up to Bariloche and spent some time by myself, just kind of traveling and meeting people and speaking Spanish and just kind of solidifying that stuff. But climbing with Argentines and different people that I would meet. Then those guys came up and we reunited and, you know, eventually went our separate ways. And um, I think those guys did their first trip to Baffin after that. And, um, you know, shortly after that, that Nico called one day or emailed, said, let's talk on the phone. And we got Sean on there and they told me, about this Scottish boat captain that they had gotten in contact with named Bob Shepton, who owned a sailboat and that was known for these Arctic explorations. Um, and Bob very much sort of modeled his sailing after an old sail sailing and climbing legend named William Tillman, um, who was the climbing partner of Eric Shipton, okay. who Shipton Spire is named after. That's one of those those, those big towers in Pakistan around mm. over on Nameless Tower and stuff. And Shipton mm. and Tillman would have, you know, just been these, they would have sailed around the world to go climbing on these t walls and on these towers. And Bob was just so enamored with that. You know, UK sailing culture is really huge. And Bob had climbing experience from his time in the Royal Marines. 
And he decided that he wanted to try to connect the two. And he started sailing to Greenland from Scotland. And, and he was recruiting these, you know, quote unquote climbers um, to go and climb on these big walls up there on the West coast of Greenland that he was sailing around and finding. And, you know, the climbers that he was finding, they just weren't really like that kind of climber necessarily. They were like, not really willing to like get the ropes out and like go big wall style on these steep cliffs. But with Nico and Sean and Olivier and I, he found that team. <laughs> and so when we met up with him in Greenland, he had the boat already there because he had been there the summer before, but you know, was sailing in the Arctic. You usually leave your boat for the winter, fly back home and then come back in the summer and sail at home or whatever but we met bob in greenland in 2010 and got on board the boat that was my first time on a sailboat and sean's but nico and olivier grew up sailing and we spent the next three months uh doing something like 10 first ascents on these big walls in the west coast of greenland um and just having the time of our lives i mean Again, this was not something I could have forecasted would happen from my humble beginnings <laughs> at Little Rock City, you know, in Chattanooga. This was just something that happened from just saying yes to opportunities and sort of putting fear aside and and just having confidence in my skills and my ability to hang. Um, so, yeah, that was our first trip. Uh, to Greenland, we we did the all those first ascents, and then all over the West Coast and down on the South Tip, Prince Christiansen, and all that stuff, and uh, and then we sailed home to Scotland across the North Atlantic in pretty rough conditions, you know, um, but we made it. And some of the worst weather we had on that whole summer was the day we landed in Scotland. I mean, it was just <laughs> blowing a gale and just hammering rain, you know, and Bob was just tickled. He's like, finally, you guys are getting an experience. This is, this is where I'm from boys. This is why I'm so tough, you know, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Bob is just a consummate adventurer. He just loves the worst conditions. And um, so, you know, that was the end of that trip or so we thought until the French climbing federation contacted us to tell us that they wanted us, they wanted to give us the PLA door Oh, which wow. is this like top prize of, you know, alpinism, uh, you know, and it was just hilarious. Like <laughs> the only time we had used ice axes was to clean grass out of cracks and <laughs> that sort of thing. But what our trip meant to climbing was just this top level of commitment to adventure. I mean, we climb these these like l capsized things but it wasn't like you just walk off the east ledges and go to the pizza deck <laughs> right <laughs> you are in the middle of nowhere and you're trying to get back to your sailboat and where the hell is that anyway um and making all that happen just day after day it was really you know in the same vein as that ski mountaineering expedition to Patagonia on the Southern Patagonia ice cap where just day after day, it was just something different and you just had to roll with it 
and make the most of it, you know, and then, you know, you could have said that trip, that first trip to Greenland was like kind of a crowning achievement. Like, Oh my God, we won the PLA door, like all that sort of thing, you know, but um, maybe it was a type of trip you never thought you'd do again. But in 2014, we did another one really similar to it with the exact same crew. Only this time we went to Baffin Island in the sailboat and we did a bunch of other big wolf first ascents and, uh, you know, had our close calls and our near misses, got up close to the polar bear, all that sort of stuff, rock fall and just wild times. Um, <laughs> but we made it through it, you know, and, and uh, three months later, you know, we were back home and doing our thing. Is that the one that you featured in the film or that was featured in the film? Yeah. So in the 2014 trip, okay. So, um, you know, we did the first trip to Greenland in 2010 and I was just shooting stills and got some really great stuff. Um, Sean was shooting a lot of video at that point. Those guys have always done their like kind of self-styled self-capture Sean edits, uh, these videos. And, um, so we, there was something about that from the 2010 adventure, but then by 2014, I was more into shooting video. Sean was much more dialed in his video work and his editing. And so we put together uh, with all of our combined footage and Sean's editing, he put together like a really cool one hour cut of that 2014 trip. That uh, Sean and Nico and Olivier and Bob traveled in Europe doing slideshows with that one hour cut for about a year. Oh, wow. Doing presentations to all the different European Alpine clubs and, um, you know, on stage and all that. And then at some point, Real Rock saw it, you know, Peter Mortimer and Zach Barr and those guys got a hold of that one hour cut and they reached out and they said, Hey, like we want to buy this film, but we want to re-edit it and we want to make it into like a real rock piece. Mm. Yeah. So then real rock took all that footage and that one hour cut and they kind of put it through the real rock treatment and they made <laughs> it in, they made it into their piece. Okay. Which is like a half hour cut. And they rearranged the timeline and they just made it into like a real film. Mm. And that thing really just took off. And, you know, we've been all over the place together. Like we would get asked to come and present the film at all these different film festivals. And yeah, that film Adventures of the Dodo won the top climbing film at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival. And I mean, it was it showed like 300 different locations in Europe. And, you know, I got invited to go all over the place with those guys and be on stage and play our songs. And <laughs> it's just really been the gift that keeps on giving, you know, um, not only did we get to live through these incredible adventures and put up these first ascents and, 
you know, sort of gain this climbing notoriety, but we kind of got to show people a different side of expedition life Mm. where you actually want to be there. This isn't some big suffer fest that you're like lamenting and you wish, you know, you had never been on or anything like that. This was like a real camaraderie between people that they were actually enjoying the hardship, you know, and I think that it has had a lasting influence on the types of films that you see coming out of the adventure world. Yeah, I would, I would say it has, and it, what you're describing really does come through in the film. And I wonder how many people listening to this have actually seen it and are just now making the connection with the wild bunch and the adventure of the Dodo. I think it was in real rock 11 and I've seen all the real rocks, but I'm a rock climber, you know, like I always gravitated or was most interested in like the Chris Sharma trying first round, first minute segment or, um, age of Andra or like, you know, hard boulders going down highball bouldering, whatever else. But having said all of that, The Adventures of the Dodo is one of my very favorite real rock segments ever. It's just so much fun. It really makes you feel like you're there. It's just such a party the whole time in in the best way. You know, you guys are still taking it seriously. You're still taking real risks, but you feel that sense of adventure and fun. And um, it's, yeah, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant film. I watched it again in, in prep for this and it was so much fun to see it again. Yeah, I mean, I think for the rock climbers, it helps if they do a little research and realize how hard these guys climb. Yeah. And realize that, like, this stuff's no joke. And, like, you pretty much can't do it. But, <laughs> I'm sorry. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, if you want to do that kind of trip, like, you've got some work to do. But... <laughs> totally like i mean you kind of you're you're getting dropped off by the boat to paint a picture for people that haven't seen the film you're getting dropped off by the boat on the beach weather might come in at any time you have no bivy gear you only have enough food for a couple days and you have to climb you have to do a first free ascent of l cap you know on like unclean rock new rock just going just going for it like it's just crazy to try to wrap your head around it i i am blown away watching it again i think i had a more appreciation for what you guys were doing out there yeah i have a lot of appreciation for the skill of everyone involved and you know i was really happy to do a lot of the camera work on it but sean did a really great job with the initial edit but then just the vision of you know the real rock crew to put that together into that nice little package. Like I thought they did a really great job and you know, it's narrated by Sean who's got that great voice and um, <laughs> uh, just that amazing spirit. And you know, yeah, those guys are in Greenland now. They were invited or maybe they invited themselves uh, with a French sailboat that was crossing the North Atlantic to go to Greenland. And they got dropped off on the east coast of Greenland in an isolated fjord. And they were going to stay for two months out there by themselves and climb some walls. And then theoretically, the sailboat's going to come back and get them. And <laughs> now that we're here in the first week of September, I haven't heard anything from them. I mean, hopefully someone has, but um, wow, we anticipate getting some correspondence here any day, but... They haven't slowed down. 
part <laughs> one bit. Although I, I do have to say, you know, my my own adventure career has tapered somewhat, you know, like I'm not as interested in just chasing off on any trip, any time uh, with just anyone, you know, but, um, you know, I know things have also changed for them as well. Like Nico bought a house, he's into farming, he's got a dog, he's got chickens, you know, I know that he also has enjoyed like a little bit more of the pastoral life as time has passed. Um, Sean, who, you know, you know, just spent the whole year of 2020, 2021 uh, in El Chaltan, Patagonia, by himself, sometimes living in a cave. Um, and during the whole COVID pandemic and quarantine and all that stuff. And, you know, but he wasn't just stuck, you know, he was thriving. <laughs> <laughs> that entire time. And if you look this guy up, I mean, you won't have to look far before you realize that he just did the first solo of the Patagonia skyline there, which is something that like all the greats have tried, but Sean just did it. And it's pretty impressive. Like the Fitz you know? Traverse. Yeah, the Fitz Traverse. Wow. Um, Sean, Sean soloed it just during that time. So what? it's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I might have kind of blown that. Um, yeah, because I guess it's something that Tommy and Alex did. Uh, and then Sean just went and soloed it. Wow. And yeah, I think Incredible. that really turned some heads. I think that was called uh, the greatest climb of all times in Patagonia or something like that, you know. So that's the type of people we're dealing with. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, like I said, it was kind of a long and twisting road for myself to get myself in the company of those guys. But, you know, it was a good fit and I never saw it coming, but that's just the way it happened. Is there anything that you'd still like to accomplish or do in your own climbing, um, in your own adventure life, whatever it is? Uh, yeah, you know, more and more I'm selective with the risks that I take, but a lot of it has to do with supporting Katie at this point and being available, you know, to climb with her. And, um, you know, that kind of played out this year, you know, she had this long term project on middle cathedral uh, called Father Time uh, that she had tried several times with different people and going big wall style and you know it's just hard for her and she would ask me did I want to do it and you know we had bought this property and I just wasn't that not that I'm not interested in the route you know because I helped Mikey put it up like there were the, that like athletic 12c pitch like i put i put the bolts in on that and like i was the first person to climb on that and but you know i wasn't i just wasn't trying to go get myself on a big wall free climbing project uh i just had other priorities and really like i just i encouraged katie just to climb with her friends you know if she is such a great climber and you know she needs a chance to express that herself, to be that leader, to be that stronger partner. Mm. Um, and she's done that. Like she toiled on that thing and she's done all these routes now 
but at a certain point with these other partners, it just wasn't happening. And so, you know, have you ever seen that type of movie where there's like a problem in the world that only one person can really solve? Um, but that person's kind of retired, you know, <laughs> and, and there's like a whole genre of films like this, you know, or, you know, they have to go find this guy, you know, but he's reluctant and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to get involved really, you know, and like, but it turns out he kind of has to, you know, it's like and, every Jason Statham movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of felt like that guy a little bit where it was like, you know, and circumstances conspired, you know, we, we've remodeled our property, like our businesses are rolling, everything's moving in the right direction. And, my interest was peaked and, you know, father time was, uh, an unusual, atypical big walling experience for me because, you know, when I would go up there with Mikey, the whole thing was strung up like fixed lines to the sky, you know, like all the way up the thing. And Mikey had climbed it ground up, but like, you know, you're leaving this snail trail of ropes behind and that went on for years, you know? So it wasn't like I was ever like going, uh, you know, on a ground up first ascent type of feel or like, you know, ordinarily, like if I'm going to try a route on El Cap, I don't just like go wrap in and check it out from the top. Like I go for like the sporting adventure of it hmm. and I start from the bottom and I like try it and I'll probably get spanked, you know, and I probably won't do it. And maybe later on I'll go in from the top, but you know, I think it's, it's father time was atypical because, you know, with Mikey, it was fixed lines. And then at this point with Katie, she had try, tried it ground up enough that, you know, I encouraged her just to fix lines on it and get to the point where she could just jug up and try these cruxes. Because I think it's pitch 14, 15, and 16 are all mid 513. Mm. And they're not easy, you know, and you expend a lot of energy just getting up to them. Um, and so, you know, strategizing with Katie, I'm like, let's just fix it and start working it and just treat it like a sport climb basically with a, a long commute you know and so this spring that's what we did and she got a lot of time in on those pitches and she started putting it together and then i came over there about a month later in mid-may and started working it with her and yeah again it was just like jugging up the lines and working these pitches and it was heinous like <laughs> it was so hard like not only hard but insecure and then you're up there on mini track and that stuff is scary in and of itself and you have to really learn to trust the gear and for the first week or so i couldn't really do the moves not because it wasn't physically possible but because the fear didn't really allow me to trust my feet and to like really commit Hmm. on these moves um but after the crux pitches there's still a couple of 512s to get to the top and one of them's pretty gnarly and so one day we decided to just get the rack out and lead up there and check out these top pitches and i was leading one of the 512s and i wind up taking like a giant whip on it which completely broke the spell and just the ultimate release of fear. And hmm. from that point on, I was totally fearless. Like, and I've heard people talk about that, 
where like you're kind of scared you haven't taken a whip on your project but then you finally do and then you're not scared and i hadn't really felt that so distinctly before but in this case like i whipped i'm in the air and like the tension just broke and like it was the softest catch ever uh which is like the greatest thing about having like a tiny climbing partner like katie (laughs) it's always soft catches um she didn't just tie you off to a tree right (laughs) um but from that point on it was it was game on and like my head was in the game and i was not scared and it was just uh you know i put it together pretty quick and um then you know katie and i got the camp stocked up at pitch 10 and we went up with our portal edge and um we left the ground one day and uh we stayed up there for 10 more days and we spent our ninth wedding anniversary up there <laughs> and uh we had a really great time and this was during one of those first heat waves at the start of june so we had we had to make some tough decisions you know like there's all of these choices that you can make when you're going to do a big wall free climb and um i think in this case people often conflate you know ethics with strategy hmm. you know okay. people want people want to say you know all sorts of things um but in the end when you're up there and you're dealing with conditions and you're trying to make the best choice for success you know you kind of have to decide so we took an unconventional step and like we free climbed no falls up to the start of the cruxes, but then we skipped those three crux pitches because it was 110 in the valley. And we like, we climbed the last five pitches and we saved those three pitches mm. for the last. And, um, cause we could see on our phones, uh, that the cooler weather was coming. So we're like, oh yeah, this is going to be our strategy. You know, this isn't like ethics. Um, this is just how it's going to work best for us Yeah, in this situation. I think, honestly, I think a lot of people just don't know that that's how big wall free climbing often works. You know, like if you're a sport climber or a boulderer or a gym climber and you're used to like, you go from the bottom to the top in order and that's how you do it. And it doesn't count until you do it that way. Like it was a long, it was a lot of years before I knew that a lot of free climbing ascents on LCAP that count you know sometimes people even climb the first third of the route and then like rappel back down to the ground and like go eat pizza and and take a few days off and then jug back up and continue or whatever it is or climb things climb all the pitches different seasons even and things like that so um, yeah yeah that's that's part of the part of the game and i think a lot of people there's just some naivete i mean there was for me like I said, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, you know, but there, there are like ideal circumstances, you know, like, um, when I did free rider, it was like climb from the ground to the top, uh, and lead every pitch and, you know, in order and blah, blah, blah. But that's just the way it works out. And that's, you know, honestly, you'd like to do everything in those ideal circumstances, but sometimes things just work out differently, you know, and, when you've got a certain amount of time to make something happen, you wind up having to make decisions to make it happen, you know? So yeah, we did it out of order. Um, We came back when it was a little cooler. You know, there's a lot of layers to an ascent like that. Like, okay, sure, there's all these 513 crux pitches. Like, 
it's run out. Like Mikey didn't sugarcoat that, you know, like <laughs> not for the faint of heart. Like, uh, it's a serious route. Um, but then there's the layer of like, Katie had already been up there three other years or something like that, you know, wow. this was like her big project, you know, and, um, you know, then we're up there together. So we're obviously married and we're, there's like a pretty significant, you know, energetic exchange that's happening up there when you're climbing with your wife and it's her project and maybe she's having a little harder time on it than you are. Hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? And you're just trying to stay supportive, but you're also trying to send. Right. You know? And so how do you do both? Like, it takes a lot of work, you know, I mean, there was a lot of pressure on both of us and we felt it. And, um, you know, uh, when we got to the Boulder problem, the first time we tried it, it was still hot. I managed to do it first go. Um, Katie wasn't quite doing it that day. Um, so she's like, you know what? She had, she had sent the Boulder problem the year before leading it. But she hadn't sent the other two pitches the year before. So she's like, I just want to focus on the pitches I haven't sent. You know? Um, so we did. And so we went up. She decided, I'm like, you call the shots. And so we went up and we, she, uh, you know, I did the endurance, or sorry, uh, the last 513 pitch is uh, Mikey had named the uh, index 11D. <laughs> um, which is more like mid 13. And it's about a body length of some of the most insecure, like extreme, uh, steep dihedral obscurity. Like, like the first time you go up to it, you, there's just, you just can't do it. Like, you know, better climbers have gotten shut down on it let's just say you know and um but we had figured it out i managed to do it um first go that day and then um katie did it after a couple of goes and like we just broke down like we were just bawling at the belay like <laughs> this sort of pressure that we put on ourselves you know and just like everything that's going on like it's such a relief for her to do that pitch, you know, like I want her to do it so bad, but like, you know, you can't make someone do something, you know, so she's got to do it and she did it. And it was really rad. Um, so then we needed to do that, uh, endurance 512 pitch there. That's the name of it, but it's again, another mid 13 pitch. Um, <laughs> what's it called? No, the athletic 12 C I think is what it's called. And, um, you know, we had worked it, we knew what to do and I did it. Um, and it felt amazing, but it didn't mean that our work was done. You know, Katie still needed to do it and she didn't do it that day, you know, and it was kind of like, Oh boy, like hmm. what's going to happen. And then, uh, it came down to our last day and she did it. Uh, which was like another really amazing experience to behold, you know? And then it was our last day and she was like, well, now I need, you know, to get like 
what a lot of people want to call the real send. She's like, now she, now at this point, Katie has sent all the pitches on the route, but it's just that she did one of them last year. <laughs> and so she's like, I need to try this, this boulder problem pitch more. And so she tried it like 15 times the rest <laughs> of that day. And then it, she was just like, you know what? I've sent this pitch. I've sent all the pitches now. I'm done with this shit. Like mm. she wants to move on and climb other things, you know? Yeah. And, you know, she knows that there's this big asterisk, like as far as the way the world is going to view this ascent, um, she knows that there's this kind of asterisk and she is the first person to say that, you know, she wrote this really eloquent blog about her experience up there and uh, all of the pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, the first thing she says is there's this big asterisk, you know, but ultimately, you know, this is a very personal game that we're playing. And what really matters is our own experience. And the second thing that really matters is that we respect how much work it takes and how, what a great achievement it is for people that can just climb these things in like impeccable style. Mm. You know, for the like Brad Gobrights and the Alex Honolds that can climb this route in a day. I mean, wow. You, you don't want to call that a send. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to. Um, I think what I'm trying to say is is like we have a lot of respect for people's experience and the work and the effort and the expertise that goes into their ascent, you know, and, you know, you want to call an apple an apple and an orange an orange. And, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know if there's a really great way to say this, but like Katie's happy with her ascent. You know, she sent all the pitches. She's climbed it the way that she wants to climb it and for the outside world looking in on that, they might not get that, but they might not have found themselves in that position either. I'm, I'm certain that 99.99% of them have not. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. so for all of us, like before we go and try to have this like armchair critique of what other people are up to, I challenge you to go out there and and push your own limits and see where the cards fall yeah. and, and just see what happens, you know? So That's anyway, great. anyway, yeah. <laughs> what does it feel like to have experienced that, that process, that route, that send with your partner, you know, to share your ninth wedding anniversary up there? What does it What does it feel like when you guys are done with it and you're you're driving back home or you're you're back home and settling back into life? I mean, it was a hundred and plus degrees in the valley while we were up there, and you know I've had this experience before on El Cap and stuff. When you're up there and you're just staring at the meadow and the river, and you can just <laughs> you can just see people down there. <laughs> frolicking about and you know you you just want to be there so bad you know but like 
I'm not usually spending a lot of time in the meadow hanging out and stuff like that. You know, like I'm usually like writing emails and trying to get my next job and like just kind of focused on the priorities, you know, like, but after a climb like that, you can really relax and like, you want to hang out in the meadow and you want to take it all in and you want to go for that swim. And, you know, that's what we did. We just spent quite a bit of time like relaxing and just kind of decompressing, you know, for me, it was a huge effort. Um, I found that I was pretty destroyed physically. I didn't climb much for the rest of the month. And it wasn't until the middle of July that I started, you know, going back into the gym and like getting back on a program and like trying to get myself back into shape, you know, um, I needed a lot of rest basically. Katie though, she's like that energizer bunny. She was like projecting like the week after we got off the wall, you know, she was like, she had her tick list out and she was dragging me out to the crag and I was just kind of like out there to belay and stuff. Uh, but she <laughs> is like always motivated and, um, psyched to get back after it. So, you know, I felt like I earned a lot of points um, <laughs> in our relationship by going up there and supporting. Um, but then at the same time, it was like a totally guilty pleasure for getting to send and uh, getting to climb all the pitches like that. And um, just a total pleasure on all counts, you know. I mean, it's a lot of work. And, um, you know, you set yourself up for failure on these things. Like, it's not easy. Like, you know, I can climb 513 usually without like exhaustive work, you know, like, sure, I've got to put my work in on some of them. But, you know, I've on-sighted those grades numerous times in the past. Like, it doesn't always happen for me, but sometimes it does. But like 13B, Mikey Schaefer route, 15 pitches up Middle Cathedral is like, it's kind of a crapshoot. Like, how hard is that anyway? You know, like, <laughs> it's not totally clear. <laughs> wow. so it was hard and it felt good uh, and it also felt like a relief you know I think the most thing that I wanted to come out of the situation was for Katie to get satisfaction um, mm. and so, so yeah I got to send Katie satisfied herself she had a great experience and that's really what I wanted um so it felt good to have all that stuff. Awesome. Yeah. What now? Are you going back into retirement or what? Um, well, so, you know, I, I kind of, I'm always, okay. So like with my climbing and now with my work, I'm kind of a generalist. Um, you know, I've got still cameras. I've got a video camera, like, you know, I do still photography jobs. I do video jobs. Um, none of that stuff looks really great on a resume. You know what I mean? Um, and since LA is right down the road and there's all this commercial work that happens down there, I'm trying to find a way to make my skills fit in in a world that's very regimented and very, like, every job on an LA film set has a name like 
these people dedicate their whole lives to like focusing the camera for for a dp or to building a camera for a first assistant and all that stuff so i'm trying to find a way to make my kind of messy career look neat to like a hollywood producer okay because that's a really great source of work for me um it's basically local work for me um but it's a challenge for, to fit in yeah uh, does that feel like does that go against the grain for you a little bit um you know i don't know if it goes against the grain i'm always trying to learn i'm always trying to just keep learning new things um i don't like to stagnate so, you know, yesterday I or I spent the last couple of days uh assisting on a car commercial up here in the Mammoth area. And I mean, it is just such a humbling experience to be like the lowest paid guy on a film set. <laughs> and there's like these 20-year-olds running around with like $30,000 cameras and like these guys are fresh out of film school and they've got like the resume to get these jobs. You know what I mean? And like, I've had this other kind of career, but I'm kind of putting myself in this position of like the low man on, you know, the roster because I'm, I want to learn a little bit from these guys and I want to try to pick up some of these skills and to be able to create new things for myself and new opportunities. Hmm. And I have a feeling that the discomfort, the discomfort that I feel in that situation will pay off. I mean, a lot of these stories kind of talk about that same thing, you know, where mm, I wasn't totally sure, but I said yes, and I went for it. And it has a way of working out. So... That's kind of what I'm up to now. We've got our, uh, you know, we live here in Bishop. We've got our place. Um, I started this small business here. It's a small co-working office to try to support the people that have got, you know, remote professional work. Uh, that's been going really well. And then I've got my studio here. I'm shooting portraits. I'm shooting small commercial work here. And uh, so, you know, at this point, I'm more comfortable with where I'm at in life than I've ever been. Uh, and that's a really nice place to be. That's so good to hear. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't have, uh, I don't feel, hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ben, I love to, I love to wrap up my conversations with a note of gratitude. What is something that you've been feeling grateful for lately? Anything yeah. Stand out? Um, well, okay. So I've never done a podcast before. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but I'm grateful for, you know, the opportunity to communicate what I'm all about with uh, a crew that hopefully is psyched to hear it. And so, so thanks for the opportunity. And, you know, talking about all this is not that easy. Um, but you've helped make it easier. Um, let's see. I'm not sure that was the best part of what I wanted to say. But um, 
a lot of these stories are just kind of me, me, me. And I know you're asking me to tell you my experience. <laughs> right. Uh, and I appreciate that. But I just want to, I, I just can't reiterate enough, like how important the support of other people and, mm. um, and just how much of a partnership and a team experience this has all been for me. Um, and I've had a lot of really great mentors and just really great partners along the way. And I dropped a few names during all this, you know, so, um, <laughs> but I assure you, they've all played a big role in my development and just kind of where I'm at. And I just really, I'm grateful for Katie and our dog Stella and our families and all of that, you know, um, yeah, my mom just reminded me, you know, that she's been to California three times now since we visited Alabama. So, um, <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of next for us. Like, that's kind of our next trip is to go down to the south. Hopefully, Katie's family's doing all right uh, after Hurricane Ida. Mm. And uh, yeah, we're going to spend some time in the south and visit family, and hopefully, get some climbing in this coming. October, November. Nice. Yeah. Try to time it with the, with the climbing season. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm grateful for this, for this time with you, for this conversation. It's been really fun to get to know you a little bit and to hear some very amazing stories. And, uh, you're a really thoughtful guy. I can tell you really, you really reflect on these experiences that you have and you've helped pass on some lessons that you've learned, which is what I always hope for in these conversations. You know, it's to, it's to highlight you as an amazing person and showcase your life, but also to, to provide all these people listening with mentorship, you know, because it's, it's such a shame when people like you have these lessons that you've learned from these tough experiences, beautiful experiences, and no one knows about them. No one else gets to, to benefit from them or draw inspiration. So, um, so thanks for doing this. Really appreciate your yeah. time. Yeah, thank you, man. I'm glad it worked out. Me too. Yeah, thanks for being patient. <laughs> I know I was kind of flaky there for a couple of weeks, but I'm glad we made it happen. Oh, I mean, I was sort of relieved. And I mean, <laughs> yeah, honestly, like last night driving home from work, I was talking to my friend like, oh my God, am I going to do this podcast? Like, I do not really like to talk about what I'm up to. I mean, I don't know why that is. I think that's why I'm a photographer um, and not a writer or something like that. I think I already talked about that, but um, it's just not that easy. I don't know what it is, you know, but it's all very personal, you know, mm. so. Well, you did a good job. <laughs> You're good well, at it. I'll be, you might not... to hear, I'll be interested to hear what you put together, you know? Yeah. So. Um, it, yeah. I find that it always... I, uh, I wrap up a conversation. This happens almost every time, especially when I'm being interviewed. I've done a few of those now and you wrap up and it's just like, oh God, like what, what just happened? What did I say? Was that interesting? Was it any good? And then every single time you give it some space, you go away from it for a couple, two or three weeks. I always have a backlog of these. Every time I circle back, it's, I'm like, this is amazing. This is someone's story. This is someone sharing their story. And it's real, it's raw, it's not, you know, polished and put together in a feature film or scripted. It's just them sharing their story, which is hard to do. But but yeah, a lot of, you, you did a good job. A lot of really beautiful things came through. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, I think it's interesting 
how often I'll have anxiety when I'm anticipating some event that's going to occur. Yeah. But ordinarily, once I get into it, it's great. I don't know what I was worried about. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> and that applies to everything, you know, climbing, work, etc. So, yeah. Well, what's next for you? I'm trying to send my boulder projects here in Estes in Rocky Mountain. I've been here for a few weeks. I'm, I have two projects that I'm really excited about. And they're also, they feel like appropriate or relevant training for stuff I want to do in rifle. So I'm here for like 10 more days. Chaos, then, chaos stuff. Yeah, one in upper and then one actually roadside. Um, I've been trying a, a V11 roof called Eternia up in upper chaos. Cool. And then another V11, uh, the Veritas, Veritas Low, right off the uh, road. It's been a little warm for that one, so that, that's been tricky. I got really close, and conditions have been kind of tough. So I think I think it should be fine. I've got plenty of time, and it looks like we've got some cooler temps coming in. But And are you, like, breaking into that sort of grade? Yeah. Yeah, it's new, it's new ground for me. Yeah. Um, cool. Good for you. Thanks. Yeah, it feels exciting. I've, I've been... I don't know, man. I climbed my first V10, I think, in 2012. And it feels like it's been quite a while since I've broken new ground in bouldering and felt stronger and more powerful. And to feel that at 32 and to feel like, oh my gosh, I think I'm progressing more quickly and feeling stronger than ever. It just feels really exciting. It's been a while since I've had that sort of like it stirs up this hunger, right? It's like, oh man, if I could do that, then what could I do if I apply that back to a rope? And then all these possibilities and routes open up and it just gets really fun. So yeah, cool. yeah, I'm excited. I've been trying to get Katie out to rifle. I used to climb there a lot. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's great. I love it. It's hard, but in a good way. I like it a lot. Well, cool, man. Yeah. What's in Thanks, store for you know, uh, What's that? I was just going to ask what's in store for the rest of your day. Uh, good question. I'm kind of I was like just kind of hanging out dreading uh, this podcast <laughs> and uh, and I did think like for I understand some reason that. I do. For some reason when I did the math, I was like I thought it was going to be at 11, but it, anyway, um so I don't know. I've I've got to decide. I had a little shoot lined up for tomorrow, but now the forest is closed around here hmm. so that's not gonna happen so i'm just kind of maybe like coming up with plan b and then just piddling about with little home projects gotcha yeah nothing glamorous cool well All thanks right, again man. i'll uh, i'll find for people listening i will try to find the video of the dinafit dangler and i will definitely find uh, a trailer for for the adventures of the dodo and put those in the show notes and i'll try to find that photo that you mentioned that you said was in your top five um of sean in the in the off width i think i think that's what you were describing um but yeah i'd love to get other photos to use for the podcast and anything that's related to what we talked about i'd love to share that for people so they can check it out sure i mean you can always you know reference my website okay I think a lot of that stuff's on there. There's a whole Perfect. wild bunch of sections. So. I'll do some digging. I'll find stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, there is a wild bunch section uh, there at benditophoto.com and uh, some of my commercial type work with Eddie Bauer. And then 
kind of where I'm at now with my studio photography. That's the the most current section of my website. And what I'm putting out there is uh, more like product and portrait oriented stuff in the studio section. And then okay. there's a little there's a little motion tab uh, as well. That's got some of the video projects that I work on around here, especially uh, one of my clients here locally is Inyo County. And uh, I pitch these projects to do uh, like accident analysis videos. Okay. Um, where oftentimes, you know, it's a, ch- it's a real challenge to communicate this stuff to people. Like, how do you convince someone to learn from someone else's mistakes? Like, mm. I think, I think, uh, like I kind of start with this question of like, can we learn from other people's mistakes or must we suffer <laughs> ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our track record's not great. It's not great, isn't it? <laughs> At least speaking um, for myself, I make a lot of I don't even learn from my own mistakes half the time, so yeah. I hear that. So I've been making these videos that um tell the story in a first-hand way of a person's accident and what they did wrong in the hopes that that has more power than like uh you know, some sort of official like search and rescue person talking about safety or whatever. Uh, I think it's better to hear it from the horse's mouth. And um, yeah, you can check that stuff out on my website too. It's pretty cool. Awesome. I think it's pretty, I think they're pretty powerful. Yeah, sounds like it. Cool. I'll link to that. Thanks again, man. Yeah, 100%. Let me know. Uh, and when you're ready for it, I'll put something together. Okay. Awesome. Thanks again, man. All right. Take it easy. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye. Like we do it.